By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. I have a vision for the world where everyone has this kind of shared goal of just making the world better. Yeah. And it's just agreed. We've got this like impartial goal yeah. and everyone's just willing to reason about it. And that's understood to be just like part of living a good model life yeah. in the same way as like not being a racist and, yes. <laughs> you know, not like murdering and so on. Yeah. And I'm just like, that is achievable. Like we could have that world. Mm rather than the world where it's like US versus China and like the, you know, the woke and the anti-woke and everyone's (laughs) fighting. And I'm like, no, instead it's kind of like, like within EA is just like, you've got all of these people that are like, okay, we want to do as much good as possible. We believe in like reason and argument as the way of like figuring out things. And it's like, people can have disagreements, but there's always this feeling of like shared project. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I want to just expand that to the world as a whole. And I'm like, okay, how do we get there? And then it's like, well, one path on this, and like, obviously I'm just trying to move yeah. the world in that direction, yeah. but one path in that direction is... Hey friends, and welcome back to Deep Dive, the ongoing podcast where every week I sit down with authors, entrepreneurs, creators, and other inspiring people. We found out how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools and mental models and mindsets and stuff that we can learn from them to help apply, to help live our best lives. What you're about to hear is an incredibly exciting, for me anyway, uh, interview with Will McCaskill. Will is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Oxford and was in fact the youngest ever associate professor. I think at the age of 27, he got his professorship there. And his research focuses around the idea of effective altruism, the idea that how can we do the most good with our careers and with our lives and with our money. And he's written this new book, What We Owe the Future. Uh, which is basically all about the idea of like, how, what, what are the things that we can do right now that will help impact future generations disproportionately highly. This is an incredibly long and wide ranging conversation. We've not, like normally we cut down these conversations quite a lot, but we thought, you know what, we tried a bit of an experiment and give you the whole four hour and something long conversation that I had with Will. We covered all sorts of things from how to figure out what to do with your life, productivity tricks. We talked a lot about the idea of long-termism and all the different existential threats that humanity is facing and what we as individuals can do about it. And just like generally an absolutely sick conversation. His book has just come out. We'll put a link in the chat. It's really, really, really good. And it's completely changed my perspective in terms of like understanding what are the risks that we as humanity face potentially even existential risks could we become extinct in the next 50 to 100 years maybe and there are things that we can do about it so hopefully you enjoy this conversation as much as i did will if if, it feels kind of weird to call you will because you're like a professor of philosophy at oxford and you've got all these like you're welcome to call me the professor (laughs) the professor yeah well (laughs) professor i'm so intrigued by your backstory so you're you were the like one of the youngest if not the youngest professor at, at oxford yeah, so the little factoid is at the time of my appointment, so it's 28, um, yep. in 2015, I was the youngest associate professor of philosophy in the world. Damn. So. Okay. So at the age of 28, you became the youngest ever <laughs> associate professor of philosophy in the world. Uh, yep. And you founded, or, or rather, you were one of the originators of the effective altruism movement. Yep. You co founded Giving What We Can or, or, in 80,000 hours in, in, in various capacities. How did you become the youngest associate professor of philosophy at Oxford. And uh, what does that mean? Sure. What's yeah, the backstory? I mean, a good dose of luck involved in that. In particular, at the age of 22, when I just moved to Oxford to begin kind of graduate, graduate school, I was just very moved by the problems in the world. In particular, I've been very influenced by Peter Singer's arguments, where the kind of idea is that we live, even if you're in a middle-class income in a rich country like the UK or the US, 
by global standards, you're really in, you know, quite intense luxury. You have something like a hundred times the income of someone in extreme poverty. Given that, don't you have a moral obligation to be using your resources to help the very poorest people in the world? And he uses this story of imagine if you're just walking past a child uh, drowning in a shallow pond, you see that child. And now imagine, you know, you're wearing a very nice suit. You're going to wait to a job interview. It's a high stakes thing. And the suit's worth hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars. And imagine that you just see that child drowning and you think, this suit is just kind of nice. I'm just going to walk on by. Don't want to don't lose the few thousand dollars. Mm. In moral philosophy, we have a technical term for people that would do that. And that's being an asshole. <laughs> um, and the thought, Singer doesn't use that term, I admit. But the thought is just if you don't do that, if you were to do that, you'd be an asshole. Like the loss of a few thousand dollars to you is just not nothing in comparison to the loss of a child's life. And that just really moved me. So I'm at graduate school. I'm planning to be a philosopher. I'm working on like logic, philosophy of language, like very esoteric things that are very intellectually interesting, but don't have a clear path to impact. And I'm like, oh, I need to, I need to alter this. I need to yeah. somehow start living a life in accordance with my values. And it was there that I met Toby Ord, who was another graduate student at the time. And it'd been interesting that I started kind of shopping around for a set of ideas that could really move me. And so, you know, I attended the Socialist Workers Party. I went yeah. to some climate kind of activism rallies, got involved with Vegetarian Vegan Society. But a lot of the ideas were a lot of self-hate. So yeah. sort of feeling very bad about the problems in the world and okay. not actually that much action, right. not that much thought about how much good you could do. Okay. And then Toby was to told me he'd made this pledge to give away everything he ever earned, above £20,000 per year. Oh, okay. And not only that, he had started really thinking about with that money that he could give, where could he give it that's the most effective places that would help other people the most. Mm. And so he had this incredibly in-depth analysis that was extremely action-oriented. And not only that, he was really upbeat about it. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't like, oh, I'm wearing this hair, hair shirt, self-flagellating, I yeah. hate myself, but I guess I must do it. Yeah. Instead, he was just like, look, this is an amazing way of living. I can live in accordance with my values. This is going to be a very small hit, if anything, to my own well-being. Yeah. But yet, I can do enormous amounts to improve the lives of hundreds or even thousands of people. Yeah. And so we had this like five-hour chat. From there, I was just completely sold. Okay. And honestly, from that point, philosophy kind of took the backseat. I you know, helped him co-found Giving What We Can, which encourages people to give at least 10% of their income over the course, you know, every year over the course of their lives until they retire. I believe that... Um, yeah, you I'm, a pledge pledge well. I'm a pledgey of so, Giving What We Can, pledgey, pledger, whatever the thing is. Yeah, I made a video pleasure. about it a couple of years ago. Well, thank you for doing that. I mean, it's just, you know, a huge impact that you're able to do. And so since that point, then I split my time. I, mean, I was about a third on a kind of academic philosophy. I wanted to kind of keep the option options open. But then the rest of the time I was helping to build what ultimately became known as the effective altruism movement mm. via setting up giving what we can, focused on donations, then yeah. a couple of hours, a couple of years later, eighty thousand hours, yep. which is advising young people on how they can use their careers to do as much good as possible. And I really thought, you know, I'd always hoped to be an academic, even since it's a bit embarrassing, like age eighteen, yeah. normally you have like cooler aspirations, but I wanted to be a philosopher. Okay. And so I really thought I was going to be making a sacrifice that was just ending that as an academic career. Yep. But through some combination of luck and being somewhat strategic in what I worked on and like efficient in like how I was using my time, I was able to just publish well and then get, uh, yeah, this position at Oxford. Yeah, I feel very happy about. And now, despite, you know, I had many years of living this slightly schizophrenic life of yep. being an academic on one hand, yep. but then 
something more like, you know, social activist, a social entrepreneur on the other hand. Sure. And now I've been able to kind of blend the two where yeah. the work I'm doing is both, you know, I think at like a kind of high academic level, a yes. little bigger, but yeah, it's also squarely focused on the most important issues. Love it. Oh man, so many, so many questions along that. That's the, oh, firstly, what is a philosopher and what does it mean to, at the age of 18, to decide you want to be an academic philosopher? Like what, what does that it's, even look like? It's pretty funny when people yeah. ask me what I do, I'm like, I still don't have a good answer. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm a lecturer, but I don't actually really give lectures. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm an academic, but people don't know what that means. Yeah. I'm starting to find own it and say like, I'm a philosopher. Yeah. What is a, it? What, what does a philosopher do? <laughs> I mean, we, like the stereotype we sit and think is kind of true. So I think the closest to think the closest thing is like, what does a mathematician do? Okay. And a mathematician just ultimately kind of sits there. They read proofs. They read like large amounts of mathematics. There's some cutting edge of thought where there have not been further proofs. Yep. And they try and like further that. And it involves a lot of like sitting, like pencil in hand, you know, trying to figure out new proofs. Okay. You can think of philosophy as a discipline as, you know, imagine like the entire sphere of thought. Okay. Of questions you could ask. Yep. There are some questions that we can answer with experiments. Sure. That's natural science. Yep. There are some questions we can answer with proofs, and that's math like domain of mathematics. Yeah. There's still a whole bunch of kind of questions that we can't answer with either of those things. Mm. So is there an objective morality? If so, what ought we to do? And then lots of the other class. Do we have free will? Does the external world exist? And so on. Okay. And what can you do if you've got those open questions that are extremely important, but you can't use a proof or you can't use yep. experiments? Well, we've just got the best we can do is kind of informal reasoning. So just very high quality arguments, clearly stating your premises, clearly stating what you're trying to argue for. And that most resembles um, the mathematician sitting at a desk doing proofs. But what you don't have is proof. You don't have proofs. Instead, you've just got arguments. And so you've, again, got to know the kind of literature, the state of thought on this topic, like you know, what's the correct moral view? And there's arguments back and forth. Yeah. You try and generate new arguments. You criticize others' arguments. Yeah. You turn them into papers and books, and then you keep kind of having this. Okay. Thing. And then at some point along this journey, you start calling yourself a philosopher slash other people start referring to you as a philosopher. That's right. I mean, Or is there like unclear. an official qualification, like with doctor, there's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's not a time, even as an undergrad, people yeah. start referring to you as a philosopher, even though you're studying. Mm. I mean, I guess the natural time at which you can really say you're a philosopher is when you've finished your PhD and have your first academic position. Ah, okay. Uh, then you're an official. was in 2014. Official so. philosopher. Yeah, but <laughs> philosopher. There's, there's no like knighting ceremony or Got anything. It. Okay. So it sounds like as a philosopher, you're spending your time essentially basically taking a question, which is the sort of question you might get in, I don't know, a university essay, mm -hmm. like just free will exist, exactly. but actually seriously tackling that question exactly, by yeah. reading all of the things that anyone has ever written about it yep. and then trying to add your own flavor of reasoning to that. Yeah, exactly. So okay. it might be, you know, there are these, let's take the example of free will. Well, does it exist? You might think, yes, of course it does. Like I make free decisions yes. um, all the time. <laughs> you know, that's like one argument. It's kind of an appeal to an introspection. Yep. But then you might say, okay, no, it doesn't exist because there's this argument that you take the laws of nature, you take the starting conditions of the universe. If I had a super powerful supercomputer, yep. I could predict exactly what was going to happen yep. through the entire course of the universe. It's actually not quite true because of quantum <laughs> physics and quantum uncertainty, but we can put that to the side. I don't, I don't think it ultimately affects the argument. Okay. And so therefore, if I could predict everything that happens, including every single action of yours, mm. you don't have free will. Mm. That's an argument. That's a very influential argument, of course. And what the philosopher might do is criticize it. So they could say, 
okay, the fact, yes, it's true. They might accept, yes, it's true that in a relevant sense, you couldn't act otherwise than in fact you did. Yep. Because all of your actions are determined by the laws of nature sure. and the starting conditions of the universe. However, nonetheless, free will does not require you to have be able to act otherwise than you in fact did. And would give some examples okay. where you give this kind of situation and you say, look, look, this is a situation where the person seems to be acting freely, yet it's also true that they couldn't have acted otherwise. And I can give you the example yeah. if you well, want. Uh, yeah, what's an example of that one? I can't, okay, so yeah. <laughs> imagine that there are three people, we'll call them Jones, Brown, and Smith. So Jones wants to kill Brown. Yep. And he, you know, goes, buys a gun, goes to where Brown is living, has his attention, I'm going to kill Brown. Yep. Smith also wants to kill Brown. Yep. And Smith has implanted an electrode into Jones's head such that if Jones were to decide, oh, actually, I've changed my mind. Yep. Have I kept the names correct? Yep. Yes. Jo uh, Jones is the sniper. Yep. Jones is the one who's going to kill Brown. Okay. Yep. Smith is the neuroscientist. Yes. Who also wants to kill Brown. Who also wants to kill Got Brown. Got it. He's implanted an electrode into Jones's head. Exactly. And the electrode is such that if Jones changes his mind, yep. it'll take over his body and he'll shoot Brown. Okay. Now, what happens is that Jones goes to Brown, shoots him, yep. dead, intentional. The electrode never needed to go off. Yep. Seems like that's a free action. Sorry, did, does Jones know that he has this electrode? No, he doesn't, oh. he doesn't know. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So from Jones' perspective, he's yep. just like, I'm going to kill that guy Brown. Yeah. Buys a gun, goes, shoots him. Yep. Seems like free action, if anything, is free. Yeah. However, he couldn't have done otherwise. If he'd chosen not to kill Brown, yes. the electrode would have activated okay. and his body would have gotten taken over and he would have yes. shot Brown anyway. But that would have been a clear case of him not having free will, right? If, if his, the electrode had taken over. Right. So it's, if he had acted otherwise, perhaps he wouldn't have free will. However, given the, how he did in fact act, yeah. it seems like, you know, if we're going to call anything free will, yeah, that must be um, it. it seems like that's it. Okay. But that suggests <laughs> that you can act freely without needing to have acted without it having been the case that you could have done otherwise. Got it. So it's like, even though you can predict exactly what the outcome is, that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't have the free will to exactly. uh, execute the outcome. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And so that's a sort of Which defense. Which invalidates of, the, or defa uh, argues against the argument about the whole supercomputer analogy. From, de from determinism, exactly. Okay. So instead, perhaps what acting freely is, is in some sense, it being an authentic decision. Yeah. It coming like it. You know, it being something not only that you want to do, but that you want to want to do, yeah. <laughs> but in some way, a, a, a decision that you yourself endorse. Yes. And that might be perfectly compatible with all of these decisions being yeah. utterly predictable. Okay. So we just had a little, <laughs> a little one minute taste of what philosophers do. Wow. Okay. And then, you know, the next round would be people criticizing the things sure. that I just said and back and forth. How do philosophers make money? <laughs> How do they make money? It's a good question. Most of them don't make much money. Okay. Um, I mean, it's almost all in paid for by universities, which are ultimately funded by the government or yeah. large foundations. Is the dream for an academic to become uh, academic philosopher to get tenure at a university so that they're sitting and thinking about stuff gets funded by someone else? Exactly. Yeah. So when I had this first position, uh, about half of my time was on teaching and university mm. admin and things like that. In a sense, that's what pays the bills, as long as, to some extent, research funding. Yeah. But the research funding is like very small in the grand scheme of things. Nice. Uh, it's now the case that I'm not on a teaching position because, you know, effective altruism is, is an area where moral philosophy is actually having a real impact on yeah. the world. It's advising now how many you know billions of dollars of philanthropic money are being spent. And so there's actually like, <laughs> it's a really good. worthwhile yeah. <laughs> investment to be trying to get greater clarity on some of these yeah. crucial issues that affect 
well, really, how can we do as much good as possible with our resources? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so definitely want to talk way more about like effective altruism. I have been a uh, a fan and a sort of proponent of the movement ever since Lucia, who's sitting right there, told me about it in like 2015 when we were in clinic in clinical school together. One thing I was going to ask: so you said your your friend Toby donates everything above 20 grand, 20 thousand pounds a year to effective causes, and he said a thing that that would only be a small hit to his well-being. Yeah. Most people listening to this would think, crap, if I was earning just 20K, most people wouldn't be keen to accept a 20K job and they'd be thinking, I need to make more more money than that because that will make me happier. And a lot of the studies that I have, the pop psychology studies that I've seen in books say 70K is the point beyond diminishing returns-ish where more money does not actually contribute to more happiness. So where does this 20,000 figure come from? Yeah, I can even talk about myself. So um, a few months after meeting Toby, I made a a similar commitment. In my own case, at least, um, I can't speak exactly for Toby, I'll kind of yeah. clarify it. So that's £20,000 post-tax in Oxford 2009. Yeah. So that's now about £26,000, £27,000 post-tax in Oxford, okay. like taking inflation into account. Yeah. And then, you know, there's lots of possible caveats and so on, like if I have kids, yeah. um, that would, you know, it would increase, it's not about me. Okay. Also health and so on. Yeah. But then, okay, what's the impact on happiness? Yeah. Well, money does by happiness. My best guess is that just, at least until you're at a very high level, that Mm. actually keeps going up. These studies saying, okay, it's like $75,000. But remember, that's where you just, at which it makes no difference at all. You're already starting to plateau kind of much, yeah, quite a bit below that. Okay. On some other studies, it keeps going up, but every doubling of your income results in the same increase in happiness. So you go from $1,000 a year to 2,000, that's the same as going from 100,000 to 200,000 in terms of your increase in happiness. So then when you actually just look at the studies and think, okay, if I'm going from, you know, let's say it would be £100,000 a year to this £26,000 a year, yeah. what's the like happiness loss just from the kind of financial loss? Yep. And it's really pretty small. It's like, I mean, in my own, like, well, let's start off just looking at the literature. It's just like a small increment loss. Maybe it's 10% or something. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I think probably not even that. But then you have to compare that to the good you can do. Yeah. And so... We can, you know, we'll talk about some of the issues impact that impact the long-term future, where I think the stakes get even greater again. Hmm. But even just looking at the amount by which you can benefit people in poor countries, you can do about a hundred times as much good for someone else as you can for yourself. Because uh, there, you there's two ways of thinking about this. One is in terms of if you want to provide a certain sort of health benefit to yourself. So in the UK, uh, the NHS, in order to prioritize kind of what drugs do they fund or treatment do they fund yep. and what don't they. Uh, they use a metric called a quality-adjusted life year. It's like one year of very high quality of health. You obviously know this as a in the course uh, of being as a an ex-doctor. Yeah. doctor. <laughs> How much does it cost to buy one year of high quality health? Mm. Uh, it costs a hundred times as much. Actually, about, maybe about a thousand times as much if you're living in the UK than if you're in a very poor country like Nigeria or Burkina Faso or Uganda. So if I'm like, oh, I could spend that money on myself, I could spend it on other people, I'd be providing a thousand years of healthy life to other people, and compared to one year for myself. Yeah. Alternatively, I could just think about transferring cash. Yep. Because of this fact that every doubling in well every doubling in imp- income increases well-being by the same increment. Yep. And because of the fact that a typical member of somewhere like the UK or the US is about a hundred times richer in financial terms yep. than the very poorest people in the world, my reducing my income by one percent increases the income of 100 people by 1% mm. 
And that provides 100 times as much benefit. And so that's the second, the second part of the consideration. Yep. Is just, and that's also just not how I think you can even do the most good. Okay. Yep. I think you yep. can get much bigger again. Sure. That's the kind of baseline. And so the thought, I mean, here's an analogy. It's like, okay, you can, you're out in an evening, you can buy a beer for yourself. You can buy 100 beers for other people, one or the other, what you want to do. I, could, I don't know. I would feel like, okay, the next round's on me yeah. if it was really that cheap. <laughs> but that's the situation we're in at the moment. It's a small, you know, hit to your own well-being. Yep. Enormous benefit to others. It just seems like a really good deal to do that. The final point is just that all of that was assuming that giving money is yep. like having an income hit, like living, like just having a lower salary. Yep. But it's not, because giving is good, is like enjoyable itself. Yep. So if I think about what's been the impact on my well-being from being involved in effective altruism, donating most of my income, well. I have a much more meaningful life. I'm now part of this like wide community of people who I just love and mm. admire and source of joy in my life. It means that like when I'm feeling down and like, you know, not liking myself very much and like, well, at least I'm doing something like, mm. you know, I'm really helping other people. And there's just this literature as well on volunteering, on giving, gives this kind of warm glow. And sometimes people give only for the warm glow, but you get it even if you're aiming just to help others as much yeah. as you can. My honest guess is just that like, it's it's probably just good being good for me overall, rather than uh, actually a, a well-being hit, as I oh. expected it might have been. Okay, okay, lots of questions on this front. So if I could buy 100 beers for other people versus one beer for myself, I would do that. Yeah. But there is a difference in practice between the warm glow I get from being able to buy beers for everyone in the office mm -hmm. than it is for me being able to, able to buy beers for people in yep. a far off country that I will never see in my life. Yep. This, I feel, strikes at the core, uh, strikes at one of the issues that I guess Peter Singer is like very against and also the effective altruism movement mm -hmm. is like, whereby I know that intellectually I should value the life of and I do value the life, or I should value the life. I would like to value the life of someone who I don't know yep. as much as I value the life of my brother. Yep. But in, in reality, that's just not true. And so how, how do you think about that thing of helping myself, helping my family and the people closest to me versus helping people that I will never see or meet somewhere in the world? Uh, yeah, so it's really tough. I don't think moral philosophers have a great kind of answer to this. I think there's, you know, there's two different moral perspectives. One is the you know, impartial utilitarian perspective, which just says, well, you know, imagine if you were making a decision about how the world should be yep. and you didn't know who you were going to be in society. Yep. It could be randomly, it could be anyone. What would you do? Well, you'd want everyone to care about everyone equally. You'd want to have much more concern for the very worst stuff in the world. Yep. There's another moral perspective which says, look, no, no, we are kind of, we're not behind this veil of ignorance. We're yep. these engaged people. We have relationships that get, these give special obligations. I think in the way that the world is today, there's not that much tension between them because the stakes are simply so high. So for sure, we can have these, so philosophers, you're asking what philosophers do, they come up with thought experiments. They love yeah. thought experiments. Yeah. And they might be like, okay, you can save, um, there's a burning building. You can either only save kind of one group. There's your brother in one, or there's 10 people, strangers to you in another. Yeah. A hundred people, yeah. a thousand, yeah. 10,000. <laughs> Probably at some point you switch. Yeah. It's not clear kind of where exactly. No. When I ask people, it tends to be like 100 or 1,000. Yeah, I was thinking it. somewhere between that amount okay, as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well. For sure, you may at some point in your life face a very difficult situation where your brother's life is on the line and you can use a lot of money. Mm. And there, it's just a very hard model decision, like given the way, you know, the enormous amount of injustice in the world, yet also the special 
obligations you have to your family. However, we're just, most of us, most of the time are not in those situations. Yes. The decision instead is, do I buy this nicer car yeah. <laughs> or give the money away? Yeah. Or do I go on this nicer holiday or give the money away? Yeah. Honestly, people just waste money most of the time. Do I have a slightly nicer house? Those are the decisions that I think we really want to focus on, at yeah. least in the first instance. Yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. at least get to the point where we're not all frivolously spending money on luxuries that don't have an enormous impact on our well-being. Yep. And then once we're at that point, then at least we can start having a conversation of, okay, when it's a really serious issue for our friends and family, yeah. like at what point does impartial concern mm. for strangers make a difference? All right, a little quick interlude before we continue with the podcast. There is this big-ass book, Principles by Ray Dalio. People have recommended this book for absolutely years, but it's just really huge. And it's more like a reference book than it is a book that you read cover to cover. So I've read little segments of this book rather than the whole thing. And the way I found which segments to read was actually by reading the summary of the book first on Shortform, who are very kindly sponsoring this episode. Now, if you haven't heard by now, Shortform is the world's best service that summarizes books, but it's way more than just book summaries. They've got one pages that summarize the key idea of the book in a single page. And they also have detailed chapter by chapter summaries that you can then sort of dive into one at a time if you want. They also have these interactive exercise segments in between some of the chapters so that you can engage more with the ideas of the book. And even better, if the author says something that's particularly controversial or that another author has disagreed with, then on short form, they'll include a short form note, which says that, hey, this thing that Ray Dalio said is actually not entirely legit. Um, like Marie Kondo or someone disagrees with him and here is what here is more details about that. So it just gives you a little bit more of a balanced viewpoint of the book that you're trying to read. Now for me, there's two main areas of my life in which I use short form. The first one is that if I have already read a book, like for example, Steal Like an Artist, then I will often look at the short form summary of the book just to revisit the ideas if I want to revisit the ideas in the book rather than rereading the book I've already read. But the second one is what I did for Principles by Ray Dalio and that is usually if a book has been recommended enough times, something like Principles by Ray Dalio, and I'm not 100% sold on whether I want to read the book or if I find myself short on time, then I'll often just look at the summary of the book on short form. And then sometimes I'll decide whether I want to read the book or not based on that. But in the case of Principles, I decided that, okay, I need to have this on my shelf. I need to get this on Kindle. This is actually a genuinely good book. But right now, most of the points are not relevant to me. So let me figure out on short form which point is most relevant to me. And then I can dive into the book and read that particular chapter uh, in a focused fashion rather than trying to read the book cover to cover. There's nothing wrong with this way of reading. You know, I often think we should treat books more like blog posts. So please don't cancel me for kind of besmirching the name of a book by not reading it uh, cover to cover. But I think a service like Shortform is really useful in the sense that it actually builds on the ideas in a book and helps you engage with them in a way that you might not have done otherwise. Anyway, if any of that signs up your street and you want to get access to the world's best book summaries, more than just book summaries, then head over to shortform.com forward slash deep dive. And that URL will give you 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you very much, Shortform, for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, yeah, I think in, in my mind, and certainly in the minds of a lot of people I've spoken to about this, it's almost uncomfortable to think that I bought Thing X, Thing X cost me $3,000, that yep. could have been the life of a child through the Against Malaria Foundation. Yep. Let me not think about that and instead think about the hypothetical scenario where Absolutely. I would still choose to save my brother rather than 100, 100 strangers. Yeah. And in a way, the extreme case is a very good, easy... It's easy oh, to dismiss. Easy to dismiss. Be like, oh, obviously in that case, like, uh, I'm not that utilitarian. Exactly. And something that people often get wrong about effective altruism is that in economist language, we're talking about what we do on the margin. Or like, say we take the world as it is, you make a small difference, like, or how you're spending your money are like, a, you know, comparatively small change. Yep. It, does that make sense? Not, how should the entire world be different? <laughs> Where, you know, people say, oh, if everyone was funding bed nets, no one would be funding the arts. Um, yep. Wouldn't that be a, a worse world? I'm like, let's have that conversation <laughs> once we've increased kind of, you know, global funding for 
global health and development up them, you know, I mean, it's a few hundred billion per year, but it could be much more than that. Yeah. Once we've eradicated extreme poverty, and we could do that while still having enormous funding for the arts. Yeah. Let's then have that conversation. Similarly, with some of the causes we prioritize, you know, maybe we say like this particular area, I don't know, let's say it's pandemic prevention. Yep. Um, so look, this is a really top priority area. We need to be funding it more. And if someone says like, oh, well, what about other cause like yep. uh, climate change or um, education or something? Is that, you're saying that's less important? And the main thing is like, it could well be more important or as important, but if it gets like a thousandth of the current funding, then on the margin, given the way society is currently prioritizing, yes. we want a bit more of this thing. And that's why it becomes the most important priority at the current time. Mm. So kind of, yeah, the way in which you, like, we should be like nudging the world at the moment doesn't in and of itself has let, have a lesson for how should the world be constructed in an ideal kind of, in an ideal society. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. I was actually giving a talk at the Oxford Union like two weeks ago. One of the questions I got afterwards was, I left medicine to pursue other things. And in a video where I talked about why I left medicine, I sort of the, the fourth thing on my list other than money and enjoyment and autonomy was impact. Yep. And I talked about the impact of an individual doctor, cited the article in 80,000 Hours yeah. about this, talked about my uh, different sort of impact at making a YouTube video that encourages yep. X number of people to take the Giving What We Can pledge. And the, you know, how, how I convince myself that that analysis is reasonable and it is a reasonable decision or at least not morally reprehensible to leave medicine for the sake of making YouTube videos, yeah. which would at first glance otherwise seem to be a morally reprehensible decision. But someone asked, be like, well, if you encouraged all of the, uh, if, if every doctor thought like you, yeah. we'd end up with no doctors and then that would be bad. Yeah. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. We don't need yeah. to like, yeah. Yeah, so I've been asked the same question, and my response is just, if only I were that persuasive. Yeah. Um, I'm not like, obviously, that would be a terrible situation, but we're very, very, very far away from that. And so, again, it's just kind of what is, what is the world as a yeah. whole over prioritizing and under prioritizing? Okay. And at the moment, I'm claiming we're over prioritizing, you know, philanthropic spending on the arts and opera or causes that are focused on. Um, issues affecting people in rich countries rather than issues affecting yes. people in poor countries. And as we'll get onto later, under-prioritizing issues that impact the you know, whole, whole yeah. course of future no, civilization. I would love to hear your philosopher's take on this. If we accept that the argument of if everyone did X, then, then that would be bad is not necessarily valid for encouraging a small number of people to do X. Can I use the same argument to say, I don't want to recycle my tin can of coke because and someone else would be like yeah but if everyone thought like you then we'd end up with so much more whatever in the in environment and i would say but they don't and like unless china and india and stuff us change their industrial stuff like my contribution to climate change is very is very negligible yep it's a very unpopular view i mentioned it in a video one time <laughs> and i got lambasted in the comments for being being a terrible person yeah but i wonder like what would be the philosopher's argument or like in my mind i don't currently have a consistent reason as to why i as an individual should waste my time waste my time mm -hmm. to vote or to recycle when i could theoretically be making a youtube video in that time that sure. theoretically reaches more people and has theoretically more impact so i think in a lot of these cases where it seems like, oh, my action as an individual doesn't yeah. matter. I think actually it does. Oh, okay. At least in expectation. Uh, so going to use some... Nice. Yeah, a little bit of math that's very helpful. Yep. So let's take the example of voting. Yes. So you might naturally think one vote doesn't make a difference. Mm. Um, it's going to be the same outcome either way. Yep. And probably that's true, but not certain. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> 
Your vote, like sometimes votes are very close. Yeah. Um, sometimes they can go to a recount. The votes, that, like who wins, is just the totality of individual votes that people have made. Yeah. And so for sure, the chance of your vote swinging the election is very, very small. But if you do, that's a truly huge impact. Yeah. I mean, the GDP of the UK is three trillion pounds per year, something like that. The governmental spending as a whole must be about trillion. Government makes enormous decisions. Should we stay in the EU? You know, decisions affecting all of our yep. lives. Once you do the maths, I actually think voting comes out as quite a high impact activity. Mm. It depends on where exactly you live. So if you're voting in a very, very safe seat, yep. perhaps it just is astronomically unlikely that your vote is going to make the difference. But if it's competitive, and the analysis has normally been done in the US, if it's competitive, and if you're pretty confident that you've got a better guess about who's going to be the better yep. leadership than the general public or the kind of median voter, yep. then once you take the very, very low probability of making a difference, yep. multiplied by the enormous, enormous impact, value, yeah. <laughs> if you do have a difference, yeah. that's called multiplying those two things together is called the expected value. Mm. Then it comes out that voting is like donating tens of thousands of dollars to charity. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it actually comes out really pretty well. <laughs> okay. And it varies from election to election. If you're in the UK, I mean, if you're a member of a political party and voting on who the leadership of that party is, I think that comes out very good. Yep. For other things, maybe much less. But it does mean that voting can often be actually, yeah, mm. is quite a good thing to do. Okay. And I think similar analyses can apply to other things where people claim I don't make a difference, like... Oh, if I buy the factory farm chicken, yeah. it'll just, the stores will stock it anyway. I don't yep. make a difference. Well, probably you don't in a particular case, but occasionally the supermarket will order 11 crates of chicken rather than 10. <laughs> yeah. And then you've made this like big difference. Yeah. In the case of recycling, actually, I think it's clearer that any of your actions are making a difference, even if they're very small. Oh, it's clearer. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, so the best case for the cycling is aluminium, actually, because that's okay. so energy intensive to make. That's the thing where you've got the kind of biggest bang for buck within the cycling. Oh. But there, it's just, it's not like, oh, I have only some chance of making a difference. Like, there, you're literally just putting this, putting aluminium into the cycling bin. It goes to the, you know, factory gets processed and just does mean that like slightly less aluminium will be created. That's slightly less energy usage. That's yep. like slightly more efficient. Okay. Now you might say the impact there is very small mm. and perhaps there are better things you could be doing with your time. So let's say you really don't enjoy mm. the cycling. You could instead be, you know, volunteering for high impact organizations or working and making mm. money that you can donate to other places. Perhaps the impact there is like much larger yeah. and I my guess is that probably is. But I guess if I if I seriously think about that, like how many times in my life is the decision to recycle or not recycle actually swung by the fact that I am currently in the middle of volunteering for a high impact organization? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you don't want to kind of create stories that yeah. are just kind of self-justifying. True. But if you really were in that situation, you're just like, look, every every single minute of mine is just it's devoted to doing as much good as possible. Yeah. I just like I don't have time to worry about the cycling. It's fine. Yeah, um, but, but I guess very few of us are actually in that position. Yeah. Going back slightly to a, to a thing we've we've already talked about, this idea of you know, you could be making easily six figures a year, if not more, because of your all of the things, but you choose to only make only make twenty seven k a year, for example, and donate the rest. So you are you are taking a sort of material quote hit on yep. the sort of standard of living that you could have. And it sounds like your two reasons for this were number one, it's not that much of a hit anyway because whatevs. And 
Number two, that that money could be way be better spent where on helping other people. And therefore, sort of number three, you in fact feel better about taking that hit than you do about having a six-figure salary. Absolutely. And yeah. therefore, it's not really a hit. It's in, in fact, a net benefit to you to, as like, if you were thinking completely selfishly, to be able to donate 80K a year to stuff other than rather than to yourself to buy a fancier car or a fancier house yeah so there's kind of three aspects is it a financial cost of course yeah is it a hit to my well-being and i'm like i'm not sure there's maybe some negatives but there's a lot of gains as well like yeah. i say having a more meaningful life being part of a community yeah but then the third thing is if i'm thinking not about kind of narrow self-interest but just given my values given like how do i want to have lived my life if i'm on my deathbed when i look back at my life and yeah. the trajectory of my life do I want to be someone who kind of went along with a crowd and bought the like nice car and so on? Cause I thought it's like what I ought to do when I was yeah. concerned about my social status. Yes. Or do I want to be someone who's like, no, there are certain things I believe are morally important. Yeah. I'm going to live a life in accordance with those values. Nice. And then it's like pretty clear that it's the third that, and I like, I feel really good about it. It feels empowering. Can we talk about feelings for uh, for a moment? So what's on your mind? <laughs> here's the here's the thing that's on my mind. I, I often have conversations with with my housemate Lucia about this. Lucia is uh, the co-founder of an organization called Leap Lead Elimination Exposure Lead Exposure Elimination Project. Yep, is the one which you have actually donated a large amount of money to this year. Yeah, I mean it's small by the standards of their budget or yeah. the giving that's going around. It was like large. Yeah, I split my um, donations into two, and they got. 50% of my donations. I'm yeah. a big fan. Nice. Yeah. So she was in my year at medical school. She also practiced for two years and then uh, as a doctor and then left medicine instead of making to, to make YouTube videos instead to found this high impact nonprofit charity thing, which is having great impact in the world, like reducing, you know, exposure to lead paint in particular in the developing world. Lucia has been strongly driven by the Peter Singer stuff since like the age of 11, when she first read, uh, I think the life you can save. Yeah. And really found that it struck at the core of her in terms of feelings that I am sleeping in this fancy house and I know that there is a child dying in Africa somewhere. Yep. And she really feels that. Yep. And when I first heard about this stuff and uh, sort of she introduced me to the effective altruism movement in like 2015, 2016, I very much agreed with all of the things intellectually, but I didn't feel it internally. I didn't yep. feel like, I, like it, it doesn't actually keep me up at night that yep. there are people dying in the world. But it seems to be a thing that genuinely does affect Lucia in terms of feelings. I wonder what, where do you stand on the, I'm doing this because I know it's rationally the right thing to do versus I'm doing this because it feels like the right thing to do, if that yeah. makes sense. Uh, it's a great question. And I think I'm a mix and I also vary over time. So yeah. going back to age 22, a lot of feelings. <laughs> okay. Like, oh, I'm really motivated by this. Yeah. It feels like you know, intense tension. When I was deciding on how much was I going to plan to give and thinking about this kind of everything above what was 20,000 pounds at the time, it was a tough decision. It was a very major decision. And I actually just, so I had visited Ethiopia before and that had made things much more visceral in terms of getting to know some people who are living in extreme poverty. But I, what I did was just, I loaded up images on Google of children suffering from horrific neglected diseases and in course of making the decision was just kind of looking at, looking at these photos. And I remember one in particular that is still kind of burned onto my retina of a child who had lymphatic filariasis of the face. So also known as elephantiasis, I think, but um, causes these huge swellings. Normally it's of the arm or legs, but the child's entire face, maybe eight year old child was like kind of swollen and drooping down. So kind of very, very gruesome image. 
I just thought, man, if my giving can just stop that once, like just that child, like putting aside the fact that, you know, probably it's hundreds or thousands of times that mm. just seems worth it to me. And so it seems like the way it feels to me is kind of like the rational kind of pushes, like decides what direction I'm going in. And then the like emotions or the feelings are like actually the engine that are pushing me forward. And I think that's, you know, been true over time as well. Now it's the case that like I've structured my life. I'm really kind of in a sustainable way over the course of my life to try and do as much good as I can. A lot of the time it just feels like, oh, I do my job. And like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm getting tired. You know, I yeah. don't know. It's more like it becomes like as if, I mean, again, you must know from being a doctor, like you're dealing with these incredibly, you know, horrific situations. You can't be endlessly empathetic all mm. of the time because you wouldn't be able to do the job. Mm. Instead, it, I'm sure you can speak to this, but becomes like a job. That's how it feels most of the time to me. But still often I'll have things that, you know, come up again in terms of suffering in the world. Yeah. Think about animals in factory farms or think about the threats that are facing us. Think about how we really messed up in terms of our COVID response. Yeah. Think about civil war that's happening in Ethiopia. And it's just like, yeah, it still really moves me. Yeah. That being said, I do think we should always go with the arguments. Like it's a mistake. Like it's a very noble, honorable thing to just want to be, you know, oh, I'm, this really feels me at the really engages me i'm just going to help this person yep but again take the you know case of being a doctor imagine being in a you know imagine being in a conflict zone so you know there's someone who's potentially dying over there someone's screaming in pain over mm. there you know what you have to do triaging, you have to triage yeah. exactly and that requires a little bit of emotional distance but that's mm. how you help the most people rather than just oh, immediately rushing and tending to the first person you see mm. i've got another friend his name is joey savoy I think you might know him. Oh, I didn't know you know Joey. Of, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, he has actually gave me a few questions to ask you okay, okay. <laughs> um, about long-termism, which we'll, which we'll definitely come to. Okay. I initially got to know Joey because he came on the podcast, the other podcast that I run with my brother, and we kind of yeah. talked about some of the AI ideas and the idea that he also pays himself sort of the median salary yeah. for the UK, which I think is around about like 20-something 20, 20 thousand a year. Okay, yeah. One of the things that first, sort of that, ab about that kind of thinking that seemed very appealing is that you decide once, you create a rule for yourself, yeah, and now you don't have to worry about money. Whereas I feel like for me, I don't have a number in my mind of like how much money I actually want slash need slash care to make. Yeah. And so almost every day, whenever I'm like looking at numbers on my YouTube channel and yeah. stuff or thinking, oh, we've got 20 people in the team, but like we're a bit, uh, everyone's over capacity. Should we, should we hire a few more? And then it's like, oh, but then there's this cost about money and margins. And then there's like, mm -hmm. oh, but over the long term, will this business crumble? And will I end up, I don't know, having to do, it's just like I, I go into this loop of essentially thinking, thinking I need more and more money to have more and more of a financial safety net so that I can then continue to do the thing which I actually enjoy, which is just sort of making videos and doing podcasts with cool people that help people yep. live their best life. Yep. And one thing that Lucia was actually uh, challenging me on the other day was if money, if you agree that money is instrumental, i.e. has no value by itself and its yep. only value is in the effect that it has, yep. whatever that effect might be to you, and you know that the thing you actually want to do, like you're just thinking completely selfishly, if I know the thing I actually want to do is just, honestly, if I won the lottery, I had, I don't know, whatever, 100 million in the bank or whatever that number is, yep. I would just continue doing the stuff. I'd do, do podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably have a lower threshold for just like flying to the Bahamas to be able to have a chat with SBF in person yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or whatever. <laughs> but I wouldn't be spending some amount of my brain space concerned about optimizing more and more of my business and my life to make more money for the sake of a safety net, which is all instrumental anyway. And it's like, it, it, it kind of becomes this loop. And I like the idea of just being like, you know what? Anything over 
25K, I'm just going to donate. So now I don't need to worry about it. I can just focus on the thing I actually care about. But how would you advise me in this situation? Help, it's me, help me out. <laughs> it's, exact, it's exactly what you should do. Right. So yeah, early on in my thinking about this, yeah. I was treating it more like every day was a decision. You know, Sainsbury's, trying to do a cost-benefit analysis of what sort of cereal to buy. <laughs> yep. like, like how many calories or like yep. the cheaper cereal versus the more expensive cereal. Is yeah. it worth it? You're just, you're not having a good time. No. And so instead, just very occasionally, like in my own case, you know, it's just, I make a donation decision yeah. every year or two, in fact. Um, it's not very, I make these kind of lump sums. Other people just do it, the money never even enters their bank account. It yeah. just goes to the, but very occasionally, maybe even just once in your life, you decide, okay, this is how much I'm going to live on, this is how much I'm going to donate. Perhaps occasionally you make decisions about your career choice as well. And then after that, you think, okay, I've thought about this now. It's not something I need to worry about, stress about. Yeah. It's just very good. And in your own case, you know, perhaps you don't want to go for this cap of, you know, 27,000 or whatever. Perhaps you want to say it's, well, you've already said 10%. Mm. Maybe you want to go higher, 20, 50%. Yeah. Or you want to just say, no, it's a cap, but it's above some higher amount, 100,000 yeah. pounds. Figure that out for yourself. I would absolutely advise you to do that. Maybe you take a couple of days and you schedule conversations with people close to you mm. um, to really figure out what's the right level. And then... Two things. One, it means you can start like publicly talking about that. Yeah. Much easier to make a commitment yes. if you're like, oh, it's now embarrassing if I go back on this. Yeah. And then, yeah, secondly, it just takes a lot of the stress away. One thing I worry about is like, let's say I want to have kids. And let's say, you know, my mom always tells me that, oh, you know, you're saying you don't care about making money right now, but just wait till you have kids. <laughs> Your views on this will change where I'm thinking. But let's say that's in maybe five, six, seven years or however long it is. Right now, I'm in a great position where I can make a lot of money because the YouTube channel is doing well and so on yeah. and so on. So surely I should make hay while the sun shines and make even more of a financial safety net because who knows, five years from now when I have kids, will I end up broken, homeless and alone? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Clearly, I think there's some flawed reasoning here, but how would you? Well, yeah. again, this is the sort of thing where take some time, figure yeah. out like how much is a reasonable amount to spend on, on your kids. Mm. Yeah, I think the median expenditure per child in the UK is like six or 7,000 pounds per year per child. But, you know, maybe you want more than that. It's fine. Make those decisions. Yeah. And perhaps that means you're like, yeah, you're not giving as much as you would otherwise be. Yeah. Perhaps or have a higher cap. But make a kind of informed decision about it. Something yeah. you can think about now. Think something you can commit to now. Yeah. It seems to me that there's this enormous marketing engine designed to squeeze as much money as possible out of parents in order by yep. in virtue of making them feel guilty yes <laughs> so we don't have this in the uk but in the us like medical advertising is mad medical advertising yeah exactly because it's a private healthcare system yeah. so you're on the subway these big billboards that are like have you heard of incredibly rare disease x it could kill your child by this medical test by oh, wow. these drugs okay they don't need to say it's like one in a million chance or something. Yeah. Or just plans as well. Like, you know, it's like you've got to get the like nicest possible plan. It's like yeah. a thousand pounds or yep. something. It's like, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, because I feel like I'm going to be a bad parent unless I do this. And yeah. that's just like, that's corporations like yeah. sticking, sticking people, I think. And so I think you can have like, you can give your children like a very nice life. I agree you should carve out money like in order to be a good parent. Mm. But that's perfectly compatible with giving a lot as well. I mean, Toby, in fact, has a child. Um, she just ha seems to have like a blessed life, like perfect life. Um, mm. And he and his wife are giving most of their income. So yeah. it's like, it's perfectly compatible, I think. With decisions like this, actually, it is just about sitting down and taking the time to actually make an informed decision. Exactly. And as long as that decision is in a, in a way like directionally correct, it's that's better than a 
general yeah. uninformed of like where the the inertia tends towards more and more and more and more for the sake of more and more and more. Exactly. So there's a yeah, there's a kind of motto that people in effect altruism often say, which is don't let the best be the enemy of the good. Mm. So you might think, oh no, I can't do this because like, oh, I wouldn't, we still wouldn't be giving enough. So I'm just not going to worry about it at all. Yeah. Or like you were saying like, oh, but I just would privilege my brother over yeah. this thing. Just like, okay, fine. But like you're giving 10% at the moment. Yeah. Can you give more? Yeah. And you're like, okay, 20%. And he's like, oh, but I ought to be giving more. It's like, fine. Still 20% better than 10. Yeah. That's like, you know, we're all morally imperfect. We're never going to be saints. We're going to have competing interests. But like relative to where we are now, like yep. how much can you boost up the kind of helping others aspect? Yeah. And generally, I think it's like quite a lot. On that note, one thing that you sort of alluded to is spending, spending a few days to at least think about a big decision. Yep. And one of the things you said was the decision you make with your career. What's, what's the deal with that? <laughs> okay. So this is huge. So the decision you make over your career, for those of us who are lucky enough to have a choice over careers, it's arguably the biggest choice you'll make in your life. Certainly one of the biggest choices. And I set up this organization back in 2011 called 80,000 Hours. We chose that number because it's approximately how many people, how many hours people work over mm. the course of their life. So if you think uh, 40, 40 years, 40 hours a week, um, 50 weeks a year, it's 80,000. Choosing that number just to get across, like, this is a big decision. You know, 1% of that is 20 weeks. You know, do people spend 20 weeks thinking about their career? Like, probably not. Like, yeah. certainly I didn't. Mm. I had the most shallow, naive understanding when I, like, yeah. blundered into graduate school in philosophy. Yeah. So the first thing is just really think about this if you're a kind of young person. And then the secondly is thinking about it in terms of social impact. Mm. So very, very many people want to do good with their career. But they find themselves in a situation, this is certainly how I felt, of just like overwhelm. What on earth could I even possibly do? And so I was like, oh, maybe I should work in nonprofits, but aren't they just a band-aid? I could work for the UN, yeah. but like I need a six-year internship, six years work experience. How do I even get that? Yeah. What, I'm just completely lost. Mm. And so what 80,000 Hours tries to do is just provide very concrete, actionable advice for people who are trying to do as much good, at least a significant amount of good, uh, through their career. Mm. And that's via a few mechanisms. So there is a podcast, the 80,000 Hours Podcast. There's a website that has enormous amounts of content on both how to think about this in general yep. and specific cause areas that we think could particularly benefit for more people working on them. And then finally, one-on-one -on -one career advice as well. So once you've read all of that content, engage with it. Yep. You know, careers are very different than donations because a big part of it is what your personal skills, talents, and how is that a best fit, yeah. a good fit for different problems. So this one-on-one -on -one advice can help match people to the areas that actually they're going to be able to shine in, and yet are also very impactful. Mm. Also perhaps set people up with mentorship and um, further mm. connections. Yeah, I think, I think the thing with the career thing is that like often the way we choose our careers is based on, oh, at 15 I enjoyed maths, therefore let me do economics for A-level. Yeah. Cool, that was fun. Let's do it at university. Cool, economics at university. All these careers companies are scouting yeah. me out. And now my options are investment banking, hedge fund, or private equity. Exactly. In my own case, <laughs> it was like, I was good at maths. So I was like, oh, maybe I should do maths. But my dad did maths at yeah. Cambridge. And so I don't really want to be like him. So I'm going to do philosophy instead, which I also like. And then yeah. it's like, now you're a philosopher. You don't get as many of these consultant firms after <laughs> yeah. you. So you become go to grad school in philosophy. And that's, yeah. that's where I am this is your life. I mean, this is just the entire course of your life. And it really requires kind of more reflection than that. And what people often do is they ask, you know, friends, family members, people they know, but like, 
having a good understanding of two things. One is just like the nature of the labor market. Yep. You know, when I was at university, no one said, hey, you know that you can do a coding boot camp. It takes three months and then you can basically stay off, go into a six-figure salary. Mm. That just wasn't a meme. Maybe it is more now. Yeah. So there's a state of the labor market. Yeah. And then secondly, is just the state of the world where there's this idea that, oh, well, what you should do is follow your passion. And there's an element of truth in that, which is that you want a good fit between a job you can really excel at, develop mastery at, and come to really enjoy. And that's really important. But this idea that I'm born with like, oh, I just always wanted to be a management consultant. That was my dream. It's just never going to happen. You ask people's passions and they say sports, music, exactly those careers that are enormously oversubscribed, very hard to get into. Whereas, I don't know, I mean, maybe nowadays the the kids would say a YouTuber is the sort of thing they Mm. want to be. But there's, I mean, through the course of setting up these nonprofits, like there are tons of things I found enormously rewarding and interesting that I would have never thought of because it's not something I had experience with, like managing, fundraising, like I hated giving talks. And so instead, the framing that we have with 80,000 Hours is start off having an understanding of what the world most needs. Because if you're just focusing on your passion and not paying attention to the world, mm. we're going to have like, you know, another sportsman or musician or artist or something or like, and these things can be good, but like, if they are, it's kind of, you've been one of the very few lucky people to yeah. break through. Instead, think, okay, what does the world really need? Is there a pressing shortage of people working on the next pandemic or yeah. AI safety or climate change or ending factory farming? Mm. And then secondly, asking within those top problems, what are the skills that are most in need? And then thirdly thinking, and what do I most provide? Where am I the best fit? Mm. So that's the kind of difference in mentality is like starting with the world's problems rather than starting with kind of myself and my particular interests. Yeah. One of the, I think one of the, the tricky things I find about this is, I, I think it always comes back down to this balance of how much do I value my own selfish desires to... Yeah make money, have status, live in a nice flat in London, whatever, versus what does the world need? Yep. And what is some of the stuff that I see from my friends who are, in, who are way more into EA than I am is that actually those things overlap. Yep. Like you actually can have, you can do good in the world while at the same time having a great time and loving yep. life. Do you find that it tends to be that there is a little bit of sacrifice or is there like once you've found the fit, you're like kind of just kind of going full speed ahead on both fronts? Uh, yeah, I mean... There's definitely, I mean, for my own case, the thing that I have most tension with is just how much do I work versus how much leisure time. The kind of financial sacrifice is just, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm also just personally, it's like if I had loads more money, what would I spend it on? Mm. I'm like, okay, well, I live in this like slightly run down house with like housemates. Yeah. I kind of like it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I certainly like living with housemates. Maybe I'd like, we could get the plumbing fixed more and it'd be less yeah. annoying or something. I don't know. There's some things, but like, it's not huge. Yeah. The thing that feels more like an ongoing thing is just like, you know, how often am I like working weekends? How much am yeah. I taking like time off and things? And that's this. But even there, it's like, how often is that doing something that's like hard in the moment, but like very rewarding overall? You know, I could have had a life that had like a lot of time off. I could have that life now, in fact. It's at least unclear to me, like, would I be happier with that life? Yeah. Maybe I'd have like higher utility over time. Like yeah. I'm on the beach kind of yeah. half the time. It would definitely be less rewarding. So again, coming back to this, like, maybe it's better than the narrow kind of self-interest, but in terms of this, all things considered, like, what's the rewarding life? But then also just loads of people, you know, within effective altruism, there's a big spectrum of people 
there are some people who are just like, I'm in this all the time. I'm just like so absorbed. I'm finding it so the warning. I'm just so committed to this. Mm. And then there's other people who are like, this is my job. And I've got loads of other interests too. Yeah. And I give it my all um, just as I would like any other job. But then evenings, weekends, holidays, yeah. I just like have a great time. Yeah. And that's like a very valid and great way to live too. Yeah, fair. And I guess it's very, it's, it's again, too easy to say that like, oh, but if I think of the extreme scenario, I wouldn't want to spend yeah, all exactly. my time thinking about these good causes. Therefore, I'm going to spend none of my time thinking of the good causes exactly. because it's That's too right. hard to think about. Exactly. Yeah. So we talked about 80,000 hours. Oh, one, one question on that front. 80,000 hours have recently been on, on a bit of a, a sponsoring spree, mm. sponsoring the Tim Ferriss show, which is yeah. you, which you've been on like ages ago. Yeah, I, I yeah. heard your episode on like 2015 or something. 2015. Yeah, it, it was, was years and years ago. Yeah. yeah, I'll be on again later this year. <laughs> nice. But you know, his podcast is famously expensive. Uh, they've actually reached out to sponsor my YouTube channel as well. So they're nice. sponsoring a video. How does, I, th I think I know the answer, but like why, why does an organization that is just like purely nonprofit and free yeah. materials and everything paying thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not maybe hundreds to Tim Ferriss and stuff for two sponsor podcasts and things yeah i mean essentially you can think of it as like an investment mm. so if you look at the history of outreach that eighty thousand hours has done on like you know what for most of the time was like an incredibly small budget yeah the return like altruistic return like how much impact you're having with the money you've put in mm. is extremely high yeah so it's simplest so there's many career paths we recommend most people who follow 80,000 hours advice are going to do direct work, yeah. but some choose this path called earning to give, where they deliberately earn, take a larger salary, and you know, or deliberately try and pursue a career where they can earn a lot in order to donate most of their wealth away. So let's even just put to the side the large majority of the impact, which is via direct paths. Just look at the earning to give. 80,000 hours has spent, I don't know exactly the future, but some numbers of millions, maybe it's over 10, but not that much more than that, tens of millions on outreach. And there's a big lag in terms of when we have the impact because we're talking to people at, yeah. while they're still at university most of the time. Mm. But let's just take one example of impact, which was in 2012. I was giving these talks about earning to give. One of the talks was at MIT. There was an audience member there who was called Sam, and he was like, oh, these ideas make sense. Yep. He went to earn to give and quantitative trading at Jane Street and then moved on to set his own, up his own company. I believe he's now the richest person in the world <laughs> under the age of 35, has already given um, hundreds of millions of dollars through his foundation this year and has publicly said he will give away, you know, essentially all of his wealth, like 99% of his wealth. And so ignore all of the impact that we had. Yeah. Apart from that one example of kind of earning to give, yeah. well, the ROI the amount of money we've raised for good causes by yep. doing that, yeah. you know, it's like tens to one, a hundred to one. Yeah. Now add in all of the other impact as well, which is like greater than that. Mm. You just, yeah, by doing this sort of outreach, talking to people, especially because no one's paying attention to young people, even though they have, I mean, Goldman Sachs is and McKinsey is, and they spend like a million dollars per university um, per year oh, wow. on this sort of, yeah, that's okay. about right. At least in the US. Yeah. Um, it's maybe a little lower in the mm. UK. Because, you know, for them, getting, like, really bright students to work for them is worth yeah, an awful way, lot. Way more than that, yeah. <laughs> for us, for, like, altruistically considered, we should be willing to pay even more. Yeah. Because we're not just getting people for a few numbers of years. We're ste steering people for the entire course of yeah, their lives. Yeah, it's like the LTV, the lifetime value of exactly, a convert yeah. <laughs> to EA is, or to, or, yeah, just some someone who yeah takes their career seriously in terms of the good they so, can have in the world exactly so someone who was just gonna they were gonna go do the investment banking yeah not really have an altruistic life someone who switches to like okay i'm really gonna try and do good yeah i'm gonna do that over the course of my life yeah that's worth millions of dollars yeah 
And so if we're doing, you know, we're just experimenting with, I mean, perhaps, you know, no one cares about what you say about effective <laughs> altruism. We'll find out. Yeah. But uh, probably I think that ROI is going to be pretty good. Yeah, it means we're just like investing compared to the value that we're creating, like very yeah. small amounts of money, actually. Yeah. And if it is the case that we're generating very significantly more resources for mm. good outcomes, it's not just a nice thing to do. Like we have a moral obligation to do it because otherwise just less good is going to get done. Yeah. I want to talk about giving what we can. And then can we talk about long-termism? Absolutely. So, giving what we can. What is, what's, what's the deal there? <laughs> right. So giving what we can launched in 2009. It's a pledge for people to give at least 10% of their income to whatever causes they believe will do the most to positively impact the world. Mm. So it's not limited by cause area. And, you know, we recommend charities, the Effective Altruism Movement, GiveWell in particular recommends global health and development charities. Mm. Effective Altruism Funds has a set of locations where you can give. But it's up to you. The only requirement is that you honestly believe this is the best way of improving the world. Yep. It started off with 23 people who had pledged to give at least 10%. Yep. Oh, I should say, if you're a student, we, you know, you're not on an income as defined in the pledge, but we kind of ask people to give 1% of whatever they're living on. Yep. And then once you start taking a salary, the 10% kicks in. Yep. So we started off with 23 people. It was a pretty small thing. Now we've grown. It's over 7,000 people have taken the pledge, amounting to low number of billions of yep. dollars in pledge donations. Yep. There's a vibrant community that kind of overlaps heavily with the effect, wider effective altruism community. Yeah. And yeah, lots of people just feel like whatever career path, you know, perhaps again, let's not let the best be the enemy of the good. You yeah. may think, look, I want to pursue the career I want to do. I'm not one of those like all in people. Yeah. But here's a way in which just anyone can have an enormous impact. Yeah. And that's by giving 10% of your income to the most effective causes. I guess we, we, we sort of alluded to this in passing, but for people who aren't familiar, like what does that look like in terms of impact? Like how, how, how much money do you need to give away to have what sort of impact if you're yeah, donating so to effective charities? The baseline is about $5,000 will on average save a life of a child in extreme poverty. That's if you fund something like Against Malaria Foundation or other organizations working on uh, malaria. Now, normally when you hear these numbers, they're kind of over-egged. So mm. I used to work as a charity fundraiser and I would say these absurd things like, oh, it costs 20 pence to provide a dose of polio that could save a life. Yeah. Um, this, in contrast, is like, really, it's our best guess. This is from enormous amounts of research that's been done by GiveWell. It costs, you know, a few dollars to buy a bed net that protects two children for two years against malaria. Provide, protect enough children after $5,000 worth of expenditure, you'll save a life. Yeah. So that's one of the things you can do. That's kind of among the most promising things in terms of direct impact in global health and development. Other things you could do within climate change, something like averting one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Best guess costs something like a ton, a uh, dollar per ton. Again, that's really pretty good if you think that in the UK, you and, you and I, we emit about seven tons per year. Well, we probably emit more because I suspect we travel more, mm. consume more, but you know, around 10 tons of CO2 per year. Well, entirely offsetting that <laughs> it would cost $10, but there's no reason why you should only offset. Instead, you could go much, much further than that. Yeah. Then on some of the other things we'll talk about, some of the long-term stuff, it just becomes much harder to ascertain kind of quantitatively yep. how much, you know, you have to get into much more speculative kind of calculations right. just in the nature of the thing. But I think it's plausible to me that you can do even more good again. And this 10% number, where does that, where, where does the 10% number come from? Why not uh, five or 15 or 20? A mix of things. So it's obviously there's some amount of arbitrariness there. Yep. It's not a coincidence <laughs> that we have 10 fingers. We count 10. <laughs> there's this long tradition of tithing where people for 
thousands of years, people much poorer than us were giving 10%. But there's also an important issue when we were kind of designing the pledge of getting the balancing act right, where if we had been promoting a 1% pledge, you might think, oh, you'd have gotten so many more people, so you'd have done more good. But I think that would have been a mistake because what we care about is like how big a difference are we making compared to how much people are donating anyway. Yep. In the UK, the average donation is about 0.7% of income yep. per year. In the US, it's about 2%. And so if we were taking that average person, we'd only be getting 0.3% of difference. Yep. In fact, the sort of person to take the pledge is probably already donating 1%. Yep. You're doing no good at all. Yep. So 10% is large enough that people aren't otherwise doing it. Mm. It's like, okay, this is, you're nearly kind of moving money that wouldn't have otherwise happened. Yep. Toby initially had the thought that giving what we can would be about people who are capping their income and giving above that. Mm. But the thought is that there you've gone too far and there's just going to be so few people doing it that people aren't going to really get on board. Yeah. And so this is like 10% is this like not like, you know, slightly non-arbitrary number yeah. that's kind of in between these two ways of failing. I think. Yeah. And again, I guess the, the the question I was always come to is if I if I were to think about this before, if I were to have heard this idea before I initially got kind of drank the Kool Aid and realized that this is a good thing and took the pledge, I would have thought, oh, but ten percent is a lot of money. Like you know, my mum, if she took a ten percent hit to her salary, she oh, we we you know fairly somewhat middle class family, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But, you know, money is one of those things. It's like, yeah. it'll always be nice to have a little bit more. And like 10%, you know, you say to parents, they'd be like, oh gosh, you know, I couldn't possibly do that because kids private school or, or whatever. Yeah. How do you think about that? I think there's a couple of things yeah. to think about there. So one thing is just imagine, so people normally make more money, at least in the beginning parts of their career, make more money over time. Mm. And you could imagine just, oh, I took this one job that was like, made 10% less yep. like so than this other job. That's often kind of decisions that people make. Yep. And they often do that because it's like, oh, it's going to be a more satisfying job. Yep. People are rarely like, oh, if only I had taken that job that paid yeah. 10% more. It's normally a small consideration yep. compared to other things. And often, in fact, if you're worried about, you mentioned your mom saying a 10% hit would feel mm. really big. Yeah. People tend to get used to the amount of money they have. Yep. And so one thing you can do is like early on, you say, okay, well, this would have been my earnings trajectory. Yep. Instead, I'm never going to go backwards. Yep. I'm never going to live have a year where I'm living on less than I did before. But the amount by which it increases is going to increase a little bit less than it would have otherwise done, yep. such that I can scale up to 10% and then have that as a sustainable amount. Yeah. So that's kind of one response is like, don't get yourself into the position where you've already you've now made a lot, so much lot of that. financial yeah. commitments. And then the second thought is thinking about this in terms of global distribution of income. I actually, I don't know how much you earn. My best guess is that you're in the richest 1% of the world's population by income. Even after my pledge, so yep. taking that as my income, I'm in the richest 5% of the world's population. And there's a kind of thought of like, oh, boo-hoo me, like, oh, it's so hard, hardship. Like, yeah. But I'm still richer than 95% of people in the world. Yeah. Like, what's going on there? Like, yeah. that can't be right. If, like, 95, you know, let's even, like, drop off the bottom, you know, 50% of people. Or those 45% of people who are in the richest half, like, yeah. if they're, like, able to live their lives, then, like, why am I not able yeah. to? So that was very, yeah, that was something that really moved me mm. to begin with. Is like, I think people just do not appreciate the sheer scale of global inequality. Yeah. And how much, even if you're just, like on a kind of middle-class income in a rich country you by glo like you know you're part of the global elite yeah. because rich countries are just so much wealthier than yeah. other countries yeah nice this thing of like you know pe pe 
people just don't appreciate the scale of of this or like certainly for me like i i don't think i have seen any of the documentaries about like why meat is bad or poverty or, or or anything like that other than if it happened to be on tv and i happened to be flicking through the channels but this is a thing that i want to do to get more of that that thing that you describe of like having genuinely having that feeling of like oh shit these are actual problems that yep. you know we need to solve fairly urgently what would be like your i guess recommended reading slash watching list for someone like me who is like i've drunk kool-aid i just don't feel anything and i want i want to feel a little bit more such a good <laughs> question i mean i have found that many people this is still more on the intellectual side but I have found the writings of Peter Singer enormously influential. Yeah. So we've got a bunch of his books in, in the flat. Okay. Some signed copies as well. Oh, <laughs> so I should actually read those. Okay, so Peter Singer. So on the animal side, animal liberation. Yeah. And he's redoing it. Um, there'll be another edition, but maybe out next year. Mm. Famine, Affluence, and Morality was his original article. Okay. I still find it fairly powerful. Yeah. The Life You Can Save yeah. was his follow-up. My own good book, Doing Good Better, that's kind of less, again, on the feeling side, but more yeah. just, you know, making the upbeat, positive case. Yep. On, again, on the kind of, you mentioned meat, the animal side of things. Speciesism, the documentary, has mm. been, yeah, kind of rated very he- highly. There's also kind of undercover investigations, which is basically investigative journalists that go into factory farms and just record what happens there, where there's an enormous amount of brutality. I mean, yeah. it's this bizarre thing where if you ask people, like, what do you think about animal cruelty? They will be like, I hate animal cruelty. It's yeah. disgusting. Yet within these enormous silos hidden from the rest of the world... Just animal cruelty, like on an unimaginable scale, is happening within factory farms, and yeah. that's the meat we consume. So that yeah, these undercover documentaries can be incredibly powerful as okay. well. I remember watching them again many years ago. I like the idea of kind of getting into philosophy. Yeah. In the sense that when I have these sorts of conversations, I feel super, super energized yeah. by them. I love hypothetical thought experiments. I often have conversations with Lucia about this a lot. And when I, whenever I read a blog post by a philosopher, I'm always like, whoa, that's yeah. so interesting. Fantastic. And I started listening to a podcast called a History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, okay, which sort know. of traces what the pre-Socratic and then Socratic and like all, all of that kind of stuff happened. But it's a bit long and it's a bit dense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is how how do I get like a kind of dummies idea of what the field of philosophy is about, so that then I can, and maybe this isn't necessarily a prerequisite, so that I can then dive into someone like Peter Singer and but and understand the con- the context behind how he came up. Okay, uh, so the single best podcast. If for the dummies guide for yep. sure would be Philosophy Bites, oh, okay. which has been running for years and yep. years, like way before podcasts were cool. Yep. That's just they're very short introductions and summaries to particular ideas. Okay. For something that's like more in depth, and occasionally, I mean, it's kind of remarkable that this is on the radio. But in our time, by Mel, with Melvin Bragg, okay, uh, it's a Radio Four program. It, but it's exceptionally everyday. And they get like really top academics on the show mm. and have like quite an intense intellectual conversation. Nice. It's very wide ranging. In Our Time covers history, science, and philosophy. Yeah. But you can, on the podcast apps, they separate it out if you want. So yeah. you can just listen to the philosophy side of things. Sick. Um, if you want something fun, Very Bad Wizards okay. is a pretty fun philosophy podcast. Yeah, I think those would be my top recommendations. Perfect. But then if I were you, I would just get people on the show yeah. and you just start grilling them. Like, okay. Um, <laughs> then it's a win-win, I think. Yeah. I could, I could make it like a bunch of recommendations of yeah. fun philosophers. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. That, would, that would be very, very handy. Yeah, because I, I love the idea of being... Like, I, I, th- I think one of the glorious things about having built this platform, be able yeah. to have someone like you on the podcast, is yeah. I just have a conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you learn so a lot. Yeah. I can just ask you all the stupid questions yeah, I've got. I'm, je- I'm jealous. Yeah. Right. Let's transition to long-termism. So... 
As a general bloke who sort of knows about this stuff, I very much vibe with the idea of let's try and do the most good with our time and with our money. Caveat, I probably while having a nice standard of life ourselves. Yep. <laughs> but there's no reason why those two things necessarily have to be in, in conflict, which is why I've taken the the 10% pledge for giving what we can and why I give 10% of my income to charity every year. And one thing we were thinking about a lot as well is, in a way, like for us, where uh, the, the point of our, I guess, business and the thing that I really care about is helping people live their best life. And I think there's sort of five pillars there of health, wealth, love, happiness, and impact. And I think on the impact front, if we could, for example get more people into mm-hmm. yay. Yeah. Like I, I, I went on 80,000 hours and did that little survey of like oh, of, of, of booking one one call. Like what are all yeah. the causes you care about? Yeah. And honestly, yeah. of the 50 of them, the only one I cared about was getting more people yeah. to care yeah. about this stuff. But I'm hoping after watching and reading more of Peter Singer's that I will actually start to physically yeah. care about more, more, more of these. Understand that, yeah. But I, so, so I, think, I think we can have some level of public health or public good impact through just in, in encouraging more people to join this stuff. And so that's like my current level of knowledge with and, uh, and and I guess if I'm thinking of what are good causes, I would go and give well, and I would see Against Malaria Foundation, I would donate to Lucia's charity, Leap, by the way, which are hiring, we've been told to plug down below if you would like to work for a high-impact nonprofit, talk about it, what we owe the future. Thank you for the yeah. signing. No worries, what we owe the future. The, the, future, <clears throat> the future starts with you. What's the deal with long-termism? Cool. Yeah. So <laughs> the core idea is just, let's just zoom out for the moment. Cool. So we're normally concerned by the problems that affect us today or like the current election cycle. But let's take just a much larger perspective on our history and our future. So, you know, universe started 13 and a half billion years ago. Yep. First replicators about 4 billion years ago. Replicators. Oh, like first organisms life. that replicate. The first oh, okay. life. Fine. Yeah. Cool. On Earth, first animals about 600 million years ago. Homo sapiens about 300,000 years ago. Agriculture about 10,000 years ago. Industrial revolution kind of 250 years ago. And now we are here now. Yes. What's going on? Okay, so that's the past. Yeah. Spans an enormous amount of time. Yeah. What about the future? Hmm. Well, how long could the human species last for? We've had about 300,000 years in our past. A typical mammal species lasts for about a million years. So if so, if we lasted as long as a typical mammal species, we might live another 700,000 years. Yeah. That's big already. That's a long time, yeah. (laughs) But things get even bigger. Yeah. We're not a typical mammal species in any way. We have 100 times the biomass of any... Um, animal that's ever walked the earth. We, you know, have technology. That kind of means two things. One, it means we could end, so we could end the lifespan of our species much earlier. We could entirely wipe ourselves out, and we'll talk about that in a second. Or we could live much longer again. So if we succeeded extending our lifespan past a typical mammal species, well, there could be hundreds of millions of uh, years left while the earth is still habitable. The lifespan of the sun something like five to eight billion years. If we were able to ultimately take to the stars, that would be hundreds of trillions of years before the last conventional stars, star formations. Okay. So when we look to the future and the potential scale of civilization, it's (laughs) truly immense. Yeah. And why does this matter? Well, it matters because future people matter. If I think about, you know, harms and benefits that I could, you know, I could prevent or bestow on people alive today, and then I think, oh, I could also cause harms and benefits to people a hundred or a thousand years' time. Yeah. It just, the distance in time just doesn't really seem to matter in the same way that distance in space doesn't matter. Uh, so, what do you mean by doesn't matter? Well, suppose I tell you you can prevent a genocide. A million people will die. Mm. 
And now I say, oh, but it'll happen in a hundred years time, or it'll happen in a thousand years time, or mm. two thousand years time. But the same number of people, for sure, and let's yeah. just assume for sure, will yep. be saved either way. Yep. Are you like, oh, well, two thousand years doesn't matter. Who cares about that? Like, I don't think so. I think it's like a matter of common sense that yeah. the mere fact that someone will exist at a later date and time yes. doesn't change their moral status. They have just the same level of moral worth. Okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> we can dig into that if okay. you want. Yes, let's dig into that. Mm -hmm. Surely there's a discount function here. Well, what are we discounting for? So it could be that you're more unsure about yeah, okay. impacts that you have later in the future. But I guess in, in this future, hypothetical world where true. I was certain to be able to prevent a genocide now versus in a year's time, yeah. I'd obviously be like, well, I mean, both. Yeah, I'd like to prevent both. Exactly. But if you, yeah. if you told me I could only prevent a genocide in a year's time, I'd be thinking, all right, let's you know, get everything into gear and figure out how to prevent this genocide. For sure, yeah. So I think like uncertainty can, of course, be a reason yeah. why like some future impact, okay. if it is therefore more uncertain, okay. is a reason to ignore it. Okay. But bear in mind, yeah, all of these future people, they have lives. They're just people like you and me. They have hopes and dreams. Like we can yeah. interact with them. Yeah. You know, if I like take, you know, it's other aspects of common sense, like people worry about radioactive waste, okay. that, you know, it pollutes for thousands of years, yeah. even hundreds of thousands of years, or carbon dioxide that we mm. emit into the atmosphere. That will persist. A significant fraction of that persists yeah. for like 100,000 years. It's only after that time that it all gets sucked out of the atmosphere. And the geophysical impacts last that long as well. Okay. And again, should we just be ignoring that? It's like, oh, it's a future time, future yeah. people, whatever. It seems like... Yeah, no, there's something about that that feels weird to be completely ignoring impact. Because it's like... You know, obviously, I care about the world that my kids live in, yeah, and their kids, because and probably their kids too, yeah. And that's where my own personal feeling would probably stop. But like, obviously, morally speaking, and and yeah, morally speaking, I should really care about everyone else, yeah, not just and, my great yeah. Grandkids. And I said, look, they're equally as important. Yeah. There might well be some, you know, genuine reasons you have to care more about people alive today. So right. you mentioned your kids, like mm. the other people who are alive today, you have these special relationships with, yep. like with your brother and yep. so on. And that can give extra reasons. Yeah. Or there might reciprocity, so reasons to, you know, people who've benefited you that you can you know, yeah, benefit sure. them as well. So some there are some additional reasons for caring more about the present. Okay. But again, like in this genocide case, about, yeah, we obviously. should care somewhat about Yeah, I'm I okay, I I fully buy that I should prevent a genocide whether it happens in a ten years a hundred years or a thousand years. Okay, fantastic. Okay. <laughs> and then you combine that with just the sheer scale of what's at stake, where I was telling you this zoomed out view of just how large a future we could potentially have. And if we should care about future people, well, even on the most conservative of these estimates, future people num outnumber us like a thousand to one. Yep. So there have been a hundred billion people in the past, about eight billion people alive today. Yep, yep. Yeah. Something like a thousand trillion people to come on more... Um, on these more kind of ambitious or optimistic um, accounts, but which I think we should take seriously, then that number gets larger again, yeah. trillions of t or trillions of people yeah. outnumbering the present. Okay. So the stakes are just huge. Yeah, enormous. <laughs> Imagine if we found a society that had like a trillion people, a trillion, trillion people alive today. Yeah. And, you know, it was perhaps under the sea or something yeah. and otherwise inaccessible had currently been inaccessible to us. Yeah. We'd think, oh my God, how are we impacting them? This is huge. Yeah. And then the third idea is that we really can make a difference, not just to the present day, but actually to the entire course of future civilization. Okay. And I think that's because of, 
you know, I gave you this long history, mm. but we are at a time of exceptionally rapid and unusually rapid change compared to either the past. So it's only been 250 years since the Industrial Revolution when the scale of kind of technological innovation massively increased. Yep. And we also, I think there are good reasons for thinking that can't continue ind indefinitely. Mm. Maybe it can continue for hundreds of years, maybe one or two thousand of years, but not even tens of thousands of years, mm. let alone the millions of years that might continue into the future. Yeah. And because we're so rapidly advancing through new technology, that creates kind of risks and opportunities that I think actually do shape the entire course of the future. Yep. The clearest are risks of extinction. So nuclear weapons were had unprecedented, both the atomic bomb and then you know, the atomic bomb had about a thousand times the destructive power of conventional weapons. The hydrogen bomb had about a thousand times greater conventional power, greater destructive power than the ato atomic weapons. That's just like the beginning of like a new era of destructive power. Yeah. Um, I think most scary of all is engineered pandemics, engineered pathogens. Okay. So pandemics in the past have already been among, have caused the largest death tolls of all catastrophes of all time. Okay. So the Black Death killed about 10% of the world's population. The precise figures are uncertain. COVID is utter colossal tragedy in terms of global, I think killed about 0.2% of the world's population so far, which on the scale of the kind of catastrophes we've had is actually comparatively small. Of yes. There's been many pandemics that have killed kind of upwards of 1% of the world's population. Hmm. But then when we look to the future, pandemics could get much worse again if they're with viruses that have been deliberately engineered to be destructive. So you could imagine a virus that has the fatality rate of Ebola, the infectiousness of measles. Well, now you've got something that like, especially if um, deliberately targeted to do so, could kill very large proportion of the world's population, maybe even. And then in the worst case scenario is literally everyone. And now how long does that effect last? Well, if the human race goes extinct, we're not coming back from that. No. <laughs> that really is an event that could happen that would have an impact over this entire course of the future. Yeah. And we've already said this future is huge, future yeah. people matter. Yeah. There's this enormous amount at stake. And so that's kind of one way in which there could be an event that could persist indefinitely, extinction or otherwise end of civilization. The second way is um, I call kind of value lock-in. Okay, sorry, can I, can I just yeah. ask a question on that Absolutely, front? yeah, yeah. There's lots, there's been lots there already. Yeah, so, okay, so this is all very scary. One somewhat weird question is something I've heard on a, on a YouTube video in one of these, Stephen Crowder's chair, changed my mind about abortion, Yeah, is that one argument for life begins at conception, life begins begins before then life begins at like sperm itself yep. is that every time you masturbate you're committing mass genocide yeah or something like that now if that's an argument against uh, um the idea that every sperm is sacred presumably yes yeah exactly because that would just be absurd yep now if we are saying that for example being able to so fu fu future lives matter what is the difference between that and saying basically sperm matter and that those future lives have not been realized just yet there's a difference between you know the people who think that even sperm are, have like moral status are persons. Right. And then you're, well, I think there's two things. Yeah. And then you're saying you're killing them. That's, you know, very different from saying like, there will be people in the future who oh. are fully grown persons. Yes, there will be. As and to, yeah. can be harmed or benefited. Okay. And if, if but, there is an extinction event, then it means that those people are prevented from being born. Yes. So there's two ways okay. in which we can impact the very long-term future. Yep. There's like extinction and that, is an enormous tragedy insofar as it kills everyone. Yeah. Like that's extremely bad. Yes. But then it has the second effect of preventing 
the oh, existence okay, of yeah. future lives. Yeah. And there we can get into some of the intense moral philosophy, which okay. I now know you're going to love, <laughs> uh, about just how should we think about that loss? Okay. And I devote kind of two chapters of the book just to that question. Okay. Because, yeah, you really do need to get into some moral, moral philosophy to think about that. But then there's a second way of positively, of impacting the long-term future, yep. which is just changing the value of the future in those worlds where we do survive. So I kind of think about it like extending humanity's lifespan versus yep. increasing its quality of life. Okay. And I think in particular, there are scenarios that, again, could occur this century where society gets locked into a particular state with a particular ideology governing it, a particular set of values that could persist forever. Mm. And in particular, I think that the date, the point of time at which we have um, sufficiently advanced artificial intelligence that yep. AIs can act as agents themselves yep. could be this point of lock-in. In the kind of extreme, you can imagine this kind of global totalitarian AI-enabled state. Yep. I think there's it that is really something that could persist indefinitely, not just an extremely long time, mm. but maybe forever. Yeah. And again, we can go into that too. And so those are the kind of two things that two pathways by which events could occur in a lifetime that I think really do have these extremely long lasting impacts. Okay. So two main reasons. Number one is something bad could happen in our lifetime that would cause the extinction of the human race. For yeah. example, Mix. engineers pandemics or yeah. like nuclear war yeah very 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 worst case nuclear war yeah um, or okay so those those sorts of things or like an asteroid hitting the earth and us not not like killing it before it gets here yep and secondly it's like okay let's say that even even if we don't extinct our entire species there are all these people who will who will come after us our kids our grandkids and so on yep at infinitum for potentially trillions of years and if we screw up the world in a in such a way i guess physically but also like governmentally in terms of how society is structured yeah or like ideologically in terms of like what people think is good and bad yeah that actually has enormous impact on the quality of the life of these people in the future exactly if, yeah. if we value the quality of life of people now like we do with quality adjusted life years and the fact that we are keen on preventing uh, illnesses that might not kill someone but might yeah. debilitate their quality of life we should also have that same at least something close to that same level of moral uh caringness <laughs> to use that word about people in the future exactly so you can imagine a future that's like wonderful blissful it's yeah. like everyone is free they can do their own things they we've like figured out the laws of nature yeah. we've got incredible technology and moral progress and Everyone has these like long, healthy, happy lives, can yep. pursue whatever they want. Could also imagine a future that's almost, you know, all the power in society is held by a single dictator yep. and the entire rest of society are essentially the slaves. Yeah. I think that developments over even the course of this century could be crucial to determining kind of which of those civilizations we get. And that's a, like a pretty scary thought. And yeah. for that, thinking that the former is better than the latter, yes. you don't need to get into the kind of moral philosophy, intense moral philosophy yeah. about whether loss of future life is like how bad a moral Yeah, it's just that. kind of obvious. We'd rather have a it's world just kind of where obvious. people are free yeah. and like, okay. <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. great. What comes next, <laughs> I guess. Okay, and then... So if we accept all those, it's like, yes. So agree, then if you accept all those, the yeah. question is just, okay, what should we do? Yep. And there are some standard examples. So again, extinctions, some... The easiest thing to focus on, we are doing enormous amounts of work trying to ensure that we prevent the next pandemic and in particular prevent worst case pandemics. If you're particular, yeah, some of the things you can do. One thing I'm pretty excited about is far ultraviolet radiation. What? <laughs> What's that? So basically just intense, like far ultraviolets, but certain spectrum of light yep. sterilizes microbes. 
So okay. you could put it just like in light sockets yeah. and it would just sterilize all of the microbes no that are flowing around. Yeah, at least wow. very recent development. That's cool. Probably we're going to fund it quite a lot. Yeah. It seems like it would be very good indeed. Yeah. It's also something that could just be very universally applicable. Because here's the kind of worry with future pandemics is you create a vaccine against flu, but mm. it doesn't work against other sorts of pathogens yes. or some sort of drug that works against some yes. pathogens. If we're really worried about the class of pandemics as a whole, yep. including very worst case pandemics, yep. including things that people are designing potentially for the destructive power yes. as part of a wet biological weapons program or something, yep. you really need very general purpose technology. Yes. This is something that could be very general purpose. Okay. And theoretically, um, someone, I suppose, theoretically, some, someone could design the virus that is has a protein that shields it against far ultraviolet <laughs> potentially but i think these like mechanical ways of or like physical mechanisms yeah. for destroying um pathogens yeah. or protecting against pathogens are at least they're much more general and yeah. much more robust than like a than specifically targeted a vaccine even yeah. like a broad spectrum vaccine so kind of yeah this would be one another yeah. is very advanced ppe so, oh, okay. I thought personal you meant, protective I thought you meant equipment. The degree. I was like, wait, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I am <laughs> also pro people yeah. doing more philosophy. Yeah. But, um, maybe not so helpful on the pandemic side of yeah. things. Um, so advanced, like personal protective equipment. Exactly. Yeah. So again, if you can imagine, we've got like masks or intense personal protective gear that yeah. is just so good that like no viruses can kind of pass through it. Perhaps you've got like kind of nanomaterials that you can breathe through, but yeah. viral particles can't pass through. Yeah. Again, very, very broad protection. Yeah. So that's kind of on the technology side, that's yeah. things we can do. And then on the policy side, we can just start to have people just taking pandemics like a lot more seriously. So yeah. there was this bill that was, you know, we just had like the worst pandemic in a hundred years. You really think that society would be like, this was bad. Yeah. We're going to stop this again. Yeah. It cost, you know, tens of trillions of dollars as well as tens of millions of lives. There was this bill that was being proposed that we were really kind of pushing for to be accepted for like about $70 billion in the US to say like never again. And what happened? You didn't get bipartisan support. People, no one was really there to champion it in the US government. Mm. And so it got whittled down and whittled down. It's now maybe two or $3 billion. But there's not apt like appetite organically for saying no we want we want to have the policy in place to say never again to pandemics right even though there are things we can do so i mean a very simple thing is just constant detection so you're just in a hundred locations around the world or maybe more you're just you know going through wastewater for example yeah. and just scanning for like is there something we don't know yeah. <laughs> in this yeah. and like as soon as it is you can like maybe get on top of things like much faster than yeah. otherwise that's something we don't do we could easily do it mm. it would be an ongoing thing it would protect us dramatically against like future yeah. pandemics because you'd be able to uh, potentially contain things much faster and there's you know there's more there too how worried are you about how worried should we be about genet uh, or about like engineered viruses and stuff I mean, I think extremely worried. Okay. I mean, I think Why? it's, I mean, it's already the case that we can genetically engineer viruses. So gain of function research is very common. And this is done in order to protect against future viruses. So you're worried perhaps about how might the flu evolve so that it becomes more transmissible or yeah. more deadly. And so, yeah, you take a virus, change its DNA, it becomes more trans transmissible, then you can study it. Yeah. So we can already do this to some extent. Yeah. Technology is just getting better and better. Mm. This is actually an area of the world where we're familiar with kind of Moore's law, like computing is very fast moving. That area of technology, Moore's law is like cost for a 
given amount of computation halves every 18 months. For sequencing DNA in many areas, it's like faster than that. Mm. It's actually like extremely fast moving area of technology. So I think it's just utterly, we already can do this to some extent. The ability to do this very well, I think very predictably is some technology we will have even within a decade or two. Secondly, so, and that means you've got the ability to design very dangerous pathogens. So the genetic recipe for smallpox it's online. Like you can just download it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's like people are not at the moment very like sufficiently concerned about the sorts of information we're putting out there. Okay. Especially given kind of future tech. Yeah. But again, we could make things that are much worse than smallpox potentially. And then here's the and you might think, well, no one really wants to do this. Mm. However, just if you look at biological weapons programs in the past, yeah. Even though it doesn't seem to make sense to design bi- biological weapons, yeah. Because like, how do you protect yourself? Like. Yeah. If you're infecting the other's um, other side, then aren't, isn't it going to come back to you? Well, the USSR had 60,000 people at its height really trying to design like some of the worst case, like some of the most deadly viruses um, they could and produce them en masse so that it could be used in war. Yeah, You can imagine it being like a kind of a deterrence. So perhaps it's a country that doesn't have nuclear weapons. Yeah, But they say like, look, if you nuke us, then we're going to just let this pathogen go and yeah. then just everyone's gone. Yeah. That can be quite scary. Yeah. Then the second aspect is that in terms of something with destructive power, in some ways we got lucky with nuclear weapons where fissile material is very easy to contain mm. and it's easy to monitor because mm. it's just so hard to make fissile material. Yeah. You really, it's like comparatively easy to identify a country that is trying to do that. Yeah. In contrast, like there are already these like at home, like build your own DNA kits, <laughs> small amounts of DNA, like the cost to do this is only going to get cheaper over time. Yep. That means like by default, on the default trajectory, if we don't intervene, yes. well, the number of actors who would have the capa- the, who would have the kind of cost and ability yes. to start playing around with such deadly um, okay. viruses. So because technology is improving so ridiculously fast, at some point in the very near future, I could theoretically go on smallpoxrecipe.org, download the recipe and be able to manufacture the smallpox virus using a mail home order. Exactly. At least if, if we don't get our act together in terms yeah. of the policy and regulatory response. And I know that I'm a decent person, but like, you know. Exactly. And most people are. And this <laughs> is the thing that yeah. like mostly assures me is like, yeah. how many people in the world really want to destroy the whole world? Mm. It's not yeah. that many. It's but like, it's there's a lot zero. of <laughs> It's also not zero. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And so when I look over the course of the century, like yeah. what's the risk I put from extinction via engineered pathogens? And I'm like, Somewhere between 0.1 and 1%. Maybe I'm like 0.5% or something. Mm. Other people I know who are experts in the area put it around about 1%. Okay. Toby Orden, his book, puts it at 3%. But here's the thought. like, If you were getting on a plane and they said, hey, it's only a one in a thousand chance that this plane is going to crash and kill yeah. everyone on board. It's not like you're particularly reassured by that. And we take enormous amounts of effort to stop plane crashes, which yeah. have much lower risks of catastrophe than this. Yeah. But yet with the all of society, we are not paying attention to that because it's like, you know, it's not yet on people's minds. Yeah. And even with a pandemic that killed 10 million people, yeah. cost trillions of tens of trillions of dollars, nonetheless, people are still not paying attention to like, actually, how bad could it get? Yeah. We need to be really careful with what we're creating. The- Bloody hell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's engineered viruses and bioweapons and stuff, which we should be, should, should try and intervene with. So, so other than these sort of broad spectrum UV thingy bulbs or nanofiber PPE, what other things can we do? 
Can we do so? Stop the cat from getting out of the bag, as it were. Yeah. So again, then there's also on the policy side. So I said there could be like yeah. constant monitoring. I think that's going to be really important. Another thing is just like in terms of like scientific culture and policy, just like choosing what we do and don't like the sort of science we do and don't engage in. Yeah. Where you know there are certain areas of science, there are certain things we don't do scientifically mm. on ethical grounds. Yeah, we don't experiment on humans, for we, example. We don't like, experiment yeah. on humans, for example. Yeah. If we wanted to clone a human, mm. like we could, that is a technology. Mm. Like you know, maybe it would cost a certain amount of money, but like it's within the within reach. We've cloned monkey macaque yeah. monkeys, all sorts of things we don't do, and have delayed that by like many decades. Mm. We could do the same with this. So we could say, look, we're not like we're just not going to engage in research that is differentially advancing this kind of very dangerous technology. Yeah. Instead, we're just going to focus our research efforts on the things that are, you know, provide... Because, and importantly, like, a lot of this, these are really well-motivated scientists. Mm. They're wanting to help people. There is genuine, like, benefit here yeah. as well. It's just that there's enormous, like, risks. Mm. And so instead, we can just focus on... We can say, like, look, this isn't the sort of thing we're going to pursue. Yeah. Instead, we're going to focus on research that's just more genuinely beneficial. So one way you could do this is just introduce uh, third-party liability insurance. So what do you mean? <laughs> in just the same way, like when you have a car, yeah. you have to take out third-party insurance mm. so that if you hit someone, you have to the cost is on you. Yeah. In the same way, if there was a lab yeah. and the virus escapes, um, I mean this only helps with like private work, not yeah. government weapons programs. Yeah. But if you have a lab and the vi lab es escapes, yeah. and I should say lab escapes are extremely common. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, this is again like underreported, but right. we can go into the history of lab leaks. It's like pretty striking. It's pretty shocking. Okay. But yeah, if it if it leaks and escapes from the lab, then you the lab you the laboratory are kind of on the hook for those costs. Okay. Um, I think if you introduced that, all of the most dangerous and it was global, all of the most dangerous research would kind of disappear overnight because even though that's a cost that they yeah. are imposing on society yeah. without other people <laughs> yeah. accepting that cost, it is not being currently born no. entirely. Like. Yeah. The labs are worried about their staff getting infected, but yes. not about the, the, world. <laughs> the world getting infected. But what about, like, insert government X or Y or Z that will not buy into to a mass agreement that, hey, let's not do this research on biological weapons. You I can mean, imagine insert government X being like, hey, the whole world's not researching these weapons. Let's do it on, in secret. It's tough. So yeah. it means they don't think we're going to get a perfect solution unless... The governments that were bought in were also willing to exert significant political pressure. But yeah, consider a rogue state like North Korea. Yeah. There's a limit to what you can do. I mean, if China were on board with this, then perhaps they can exert sufficient political pressure that mm. they could get on board as well. Yeah. But you could at least slow things down. Okay. You know, North Korea is not the technological leader in the world. <laughs> and so yeah. if the major technological leaders were willing to say, look, we're going to just we're going to really put this on ice until our defensive biological capabilities yeah. are very strong. Okay. I think the world would be in a better better place. How did this happen for nuclear weapons? And what are the what are your concerns about nuclear weapons in the future? When you say, how did this happen? As in, how one? did we put the cat back in the bag? Or, I mean, or have we? <laughs> I mean, we didn't really. So okay. nuclear weapons first developed by the US at the end of the Second World War. That was in 1945, and they were used immediately upon development. Four years later, the USSR had the first nuclear weapons. Yep. And then um, not so long after that, other nuclear countries, yeah. yeah, the US, UK, sorry, as well as the UK, France, China, India, Pakistan, some others. Mm. And there was, 
There have been some major successes. Successes. Mm. The peak of the use of nuclear weapons was of the arsenals of nuclear weapons was in the late in the eighties, I think. Okay, it peaked at about forty thousand warheads. Now there's only about nine thousand warheads. Right, it's almost entirely between the U.S. and USSR. Right, so they were all um, like they were sort of competing to see who could have the biggest arsenal. Exactly, in case yeah. of. Uh, in case of no light nuclear yeah. war, exactly. Then just kind of long, slow periods of diplomacy were able to get those kind of numbers down. Um, I really don't think we'll ever see a point where it's at zero. Yeah. And then again, because it was very hard to develop kind of new nuclear yeah. weapons, there can be intense political pressure, especially from the very powerful countries mm. that, you know, we're going back 60 years, it's US, UK, US, yeah. um, USSR. They have sufficient power that they can yeah. ensure that other countries don't start. And so I guess if you're an individual interested in a high-impact career and you get into diplomacy, for example, you could have outsized influence compared to if you did not decide you wanted to go into that. For example, for example yeah. yeah. Yeah, for example. Like that guy that stopped the, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, yes. The guy who didn't press the button even though the communication, the, that, that, that story that I heard somewhere or other yeah, so this, had an enormous impact on the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this yeah, story was, um, so Cuban Missile Crisis... Very close call for the US and USSR going to yeah. war. JFK put the figure out, but somewhere between one in three and one in two, mm. that nuclear war was the result. There was a particular submarine that it had lost radio contact with the rest of the fleet. It was nuclear armed. There, but ships on the surface were trying to indicate to that submarine that it should rise to the surface by dropping kind of dummy depth charges. However, the submarine had no idea, the leader of the submarine had no idea what was happening. He thought war had broken out. He, he was very angry. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, we should launch. The protocol, if I recall correctly, was that as long as kind of two out of three of the leadership said, yes, it's right to launch the nuclear weapons, they should do so. It was pure luck that there was a high up, a very high up official, Vasily Arkhipov, who was a war veteran himself and actually a war hero, mm. also happened to be on there. And he was like, no, we shouldn't launch the nuclear weapons. It's like too risky. We should go up to the surface instead. And he managed to kind of win the argument. But it was really like fluke that he, he shouldn't even, like it was fluke that he was on the submarine yeah. in the first place. Right. But yeah, he like in that case, single-handedly stopped all out nuclear war. Yeah. That's a very close call that we had. Mm. And so if you can be in a position of such influence as Vasily Arkhipov was, that's an enormous way to have, you know, that's an enormous impact that yeah. he had. And it does feel weird, like, as an altruist, oh, you should go and work in defense policy or something yeah. like that. It's not the standard path yeah. for altruistic like young people. Yeah. Exactly. But if you're thinking about what are things that are really consequential in the world, like what weapons are being built... When do people, when do countries go to war? How do they handle mm. these like very like tense and contingent moments in terms of decisions to go to war? Well, those are just like, that's just very high impact and having kind of more sensible, better informed, more altruistic and, you know, morally motivated people in the room just makes the world go better. Because it wasn't just Vasily Arkhipov as a story of a kind of close call. There are many other examples as well where it seems like individual actors just saying no is actually what was the difference between war and uh, not war. What's the risk with nuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs, etc., like now slash in the future? How, how worried are you? I mean, I'm very worried about the prospect of a nuclear war. So what's the chance that we have a nuclear war in our lifetimes, like an all-out nuclear war? I'd say at least 20%. 
Um, really? Yeah. Twenty percent. Like, yeah. I mean, See? we yeah historically <laughs> historically the lives of ourselves and our parents are very is like very weird because yeah. there's been such a long period of peace. Right. So we think of the second world. You know, we think of the twentieth century. It's like oh, the most yeah all the wars. deadly century yeah. <laughs> ever. And like certainly World War One and Two were extreme events in yeah. terms of how deadly they were. But war between great powers is like the norm throughout all of history. Right. And so the stranger thing is that we've had this 70 years of comparative peace. Yeah. And obviously it's not been a peaceful time. No. Yeah. Enormous numbers of wars. Yeah. But no war between kind of great powers. Yeah. Partly I think that's just luck that the USSR yeah. and US never went to war. Mm. But then one argument for this is just because the US has been such a hegemon. Yeah. So it's like... Other yeah. than the possible USSR, it's yeah. like, who are you going to mess with exactly? Yeah. That will change over the course of the century. Mm. Um, China is, I mean, depending on all, how you count it, already has overtaken yeah. US as an economic power. Certainly will in the future and will as a military power too. Mm. That could change the kind of underlying dynamics. And so when we look at kind of forecasting platforms, like what's the chance of a, yeah, what's the chance of kind of World War Three war between great powers yeah. over the course of the next, it looks to be something like, one in three, one in two. Something. Bloody hell. <laughs> and then, yeah, some discount for like, what's the chance that turns into a, yeah. a kind of a nuclear war? Okay. Yeah, 20%. Would seem about like, obviously you can quibble, but sure. if it's 10%, if it's 40%, yeah, it way, doesn't no really you're change get on that the qualitative yeah. difference. Yeah. So that's very scary. I think that would be extremely bad from a long-term perspective. Not least, you know, it would wipe Europe and the US off the map. I think that like, there are plausible arguments that like liberal democracy is actually like a quite fragile thing. We're quite lucky to be living in such that that's the kind of yeah. to widespread globally rather than authoritarian governments. There's this further question of like, would it kill literally everybody? Mm. I think that's very unlikely. The early kind of Carl Sagan and others like early like anti-nuclear advocates mm. often, you know, sometimes make claims like, oh, this would be the end of like literal end of humanity. Everyone yeah. would die. I think that was seriously overstated. I mean, you kind of don't need to overstate it. It's already you're talking about yeah. like <laughs> hundreds of millions of dead from the direct explosions. Yeah. If there is a nuclear winter of some form, which I don't know, I think significant chance, maybe like one in three that that's, that occurs. It's still like, un it's still kind of unclear. Yeah. Like there hasn't been that much modeling on it, surprisingly. Okay. Yeah, but still significant chance. That's then billions dead. Nonetheless, I think like unless things change radically. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine a world where arsenals are like a thousand times greater than they are now. Yeah. It's not... In terms of global GDP, it's not that expensive no. to create new nuclear warheads, or where there's like next level again of kind of nuclear of kind of nuclear power. Mm. Possibly that gets into kind of extinction level territory, but mm. otherwise, I think like yeah, people, some large number of people would survive. Yeah. But the kind of devastation that would invoke in terms of the shifting the trajectory of human civilization in yeah. a negative direction would be absolutely huge, I think. Damn. Okay, so we've, we've I'm talked. I'm sorry that this, this conversation, uh, we were so lighthearted in the first half. Um, well, how do philosophers make money? <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so we've, got, we've talked about engineered bioweapons. We've talked about nukes. What else are you worried about? What else should we at large be worried about? Yeah, so those are the things I'm most worried about in terms of catastrophe, just like utter destruction on the world. Yep. The other side of things is like, it's a little bit harder to get grips with, but I think is as or maybe even more important, which is this idea of value lock-in. So value uh, lock-in. Value lock-in. Yeah. So or like that? or ideological lock-in. So the idea that, you know, we have been making moral progress. It was only a few hundred years ago, like seventeen hundred, like three out of four people were in forced labor, some form of forced labor. And I talk about this at length in the book. It's kind of 
uh, we could go into it. it takes a while you know i think that like near elimination of slavery worldwide or like legal abolition you know i think that was plausibly at least a somewhat contingent event like it was as a, as a, uh, as a result of like moral arguments and moral campaigns what do you mean by contingent event contingent in the sense like it could have gone otherwise oh right so okay, yeah. could there be a world that had the same level of technology that we have mm -hmm. now but where you know you and i like Rather than, rather than your employees, you have slaves kind yeah. of working for you. And that's just regarded as a kind of morally normal thing. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure. Maybe it was just, like, inevitable that it was yeah. going to um Because it was, like, a very morally, like, very morally normal thing for absolutely ages. For ages. It was, yeah. like, I mean, it was really, like, at least by the slaveholders. Uh, I mean, it was across all societies. So yeah. almost every society after the hunter-gatherer era, like, agricultural society, had... Um, some yeah. form of slaveholding. And we listen to like the Stoics and stuff, but they were chill about slaves. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of the, you know. Yeah. All of the philosophers uh, in, and stuff all the philosophers, that we they all slaves. Like, yeah. They defended slavery as well, or like at least accepted it as part of life. Yeah. You know, these were people that were dedicating their lives to moral reflection, Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. Immanuel Kant, one of the great rational rationalist enlightenment philosophers, like defended slavery. Even the kind of enlightenment philosophers that are regarded as like anti-slavery. Yeah. It's very tepid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like Montesquieu is like, oh yeah, well, people shouldn't really be slaves unless it's hot. If it's a hot climate, then like, yeah, slavery is okay then. It's like, so people, it's really, I think, the thing I kind of partly want to do in the book is really make people appreciate other people can have very different moral points of view. Yeah, because right now for us, I mean, just to go on the slavery example, like it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, well, what about slavery is like the trump card in any kind of argument you're having exactly because it's yeah. always that it's just such a no-brainer that obviously slavery is bad for the record obviously Obvi slavery is bad obviously, obviously it's, it's so bad you obviously don't even it's, need to, it's exactly. basically axiomatic at this point but like but 300 you, years if, ago it if really you wasn't. if you and yeah. i had been born into basically any other society yeah. and were part of the kind of the elites of that society yeah. we'd be rationalizing prior to 1700, <laughs> <on a> <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly we'd be rationalizing it probably we wouldn't even be talking about it yeah because it's just such um, a normal like kind of eating, because yeah exactly such a normal part of it. exactly we wouldn't have been talking about vegetarianism there's yeah. lots of things and so i think it really could go either way and then in the future i think it could be that the world settles in some kind of set of moral values yeah. that then just persist indefinitely and Pers yeah persist indefinitely okay right. as in so um at the moment there's been like a lot of moral change especially yeah. at the moment it's mm. not it's not inevitable that that could continue. And I think we've seen a lot of moral progress, in yeah. fact, as well. But we could see the kind of untimely end of moral progress, where that could happen in a couple of ways. One, if you end up just having like the single world culture or world government, then uh, it could be that it could be that that's like not a very morally exploratory single culture yeah. or kind of one world government. Yes, and okay. so you just have this one ideology, gets locked in forever. Mm. So... This is kind of clearest if you look at, you know, totalitarian regimes that we saw in the 20th century. Yeah. So the Nazis, they aimed for the Thousand Year Reich. They were aiming for, you know, at least aspirationally, yeah. control over the world yeah. forever yeah. with a single set of, like, with a single ideology. And part of the reason we see moral change over time is that we have kind of competition, moral competition, either across societies. Yeah. So why did the Soviet Union fall? Kind of in part, at least, it's like, you know that there's these other countries with like <laughs> liber liberal democracies yeah. <laughs> and there's a better life. Yeah. If you'd not got that globally, yes. then that's one reason for kind of moral change. Um, yeah. As in you can see other people like on TV and stuff. Exactly. Like, yeah. Oh, they, they're free. Hang on. That, that, that seems yeah. good. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Or internally. So we live in a liberal society, so yep. people can pursue all sorts of different moral forms of life. Yep. And then you can say like, oh, hey, actually, like, for example, you know, there are people in same-sex relationships and... 
actually, that just seems better for them. And like over time, yeah. like the better model arguments can win out. Yeah. But again, if you have this kind of totalitarian regime, you've oh, got God, like yeah. slick <laughs> adherence to the ideology, you don't necessarily have that. Yeah. And that's a, that's the sort of thing that will then reinforce itself. Exactly. That's and you right. get these sort of, you know, the final empire by Brandon Sanderson type situations where you have a yeah. government ruling for a thousand years and you've got these little resistance rebels, but like they can't Perhaps, take on yeah. the might of the empire exactly. kind of vibes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And again, like, you know, we've had kind of in some sense near misses, like, yeah. you know, I don't think that the Nazis like ever had a real chance of like getting global governance, but you yeah. could imagine like, it's not such a different kind of way history could have gone yeah. such that they could have really won out or the USSR could have like yeah. really kind of conquered the world. But then the most scary thing of all, or like the most worrying thing of all is like future technology. Okay. So one, yeah, one other reason for like change over time is just that people die and that creates this kind of churn over yeah. time. That again is something that may change. This is now, I mean, one would be if we just simply stop the like biological aging process, people would have natural lifespans of like many thousands of years. Yep. But a second, and I'll caveat, like this is where things start feeling like the most sci-fi, but okay. I really want to defend them as like not sci-fi actually, sure. like yeah. things that could completely happen in our lifetime yeah. is again, once you start having AI systems that are agents in the relevant sense. Yep. So we have AI systems that are like narrow at the moment, they're very good at playing Go yep. or like playing Starcraft or predicting or like writing text. Yep. We don't have things that realistic that like, can perform many different tasks yeah. in the way that humans can. Mm. But that will, like, probably that will change. Yeah. And there are good arguments for thinking that change in our lifetime. Yeah. So in particular, the latest machine learning models, the amount of computation they use, is kind of comparable to like a honeybee brain. It's nothing, isn't right. it? Yeah. <laughs> but predictably, so yeah, all of that stuff, amazing stuff computers were doing, yeah. all like less than a bee. Yeah. Predictably though, like it's very unclear, yeah. like yeah, neuroscience, neuroscientists, it's like very unclear, like how much computation the human brain does, mm. but we can give ranges. It spans many orders of magnitude. It's really very likely that unless there's some other catastrophe that preempts, preempts this, that we will be creating ML machine learning models, AI models that have the same amount of computational power as the human brain mm. and Again, pretty likely by the end of the century that we will have also done like a comparable a comparable amount of like training, what yep. air researchers call training. Mm. And so it really looks that like within our lifetime, we're kind of within the developments of AI, yep. we're moving over the kind of crucial boundary yep. of like artificial intelligence rivaling of exceeding human intelligence. Mm. It's plausible we're moving to a world where yeah, the kind of smartest beings on the planet are digital rather than human. One set of concerns there is like, well, what if this, the AIs like take over, yeah. disempower humans? This is very familiar now with them. Nick Boston's super intelligence and other discussion. Um, I talk about this in the book and I think it's really important and like there's like tons of good work on it and we mm -hmm. can talk about that. But even if we navigate that challenge, yep. there's still this new thing of just, this creates a moment of lock-in where yep. one, as soon as you've got um, artificially intelligent agents, yep. you now have beings that are essentially immortal because yep. any piece of software is infinitely replicable. Yep. Um, any piece of hardware will wear out. Yep. But if you can just copy and copy and paste the software, then if you have either like, it's just like an AI enforcing a constitution or kind of- Sorry, an AI enforcing a constitution? Uh, yeah, okay. so you could imagine that like, 
So let's suppose you're the kind of global dictator. Yes, I'm a global dictator. Yes. I've got AI which at my command. <laughs> which you've already wanted to of do. Of course, yeah, it's been on the bucket list for a while. Yeah. You have your ideology. Yes. You're like a fervent zealot in the way that yes. Hitler or Stalin was. Sure. You want that ideology to persist forever. Yes. What can you do? Well, one thing is that you could just try and create an AI agent, like artificial general intelligence, yes. in your own image as closely as possible. Yeah. So that it's like your heir and just kind of rules. Yeah. Or instead, you could say, look, there's certain constraints I want for the world. Yes. And that will be in the power of this, like, very powerful artificial intelligence. Right. That's the kind of AI constitution I was imagining. So if my ideology was that the only books anyone should ever read are books by Brandon Sanderson, I could theoretically make that a law and enforce it through some through kind of AI agent that eliminates anything that is not a fantasy novel. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And is enforcing that eternally because it's immortal, yes. essentially. And so that's why... Even if we avoid this issue, the risk of kind of misaligned takeover yeah. by AIs themselves, yeah. we still have this possible opportunity, possible choice moment, yeah. which is a choice moment for the whole future of civilization mm. between do we use this power to mm. create like a liberal flourishing world where people can pursue their own different moral yeah. conceptions, try and get to a point where yeah. we've really like figured out what's correct morally pursuing that or is it the case that someone is taking power using that ideology um taking power and entrenching that ideology yeah. and then using these immortal beings to enforce that ideology for yeah. all time yeah. that is crucially important because it means that well i talked spoke earlier about these like two possible worlds yeah. one is this flourishing liberal world where everyone is free and yeah. can do what they want, or this other is like all of the powers in a single dictator and yeah. can the rest of all the other beings in society are their slaves. Yeah. Like, I think the point at which we get human level or greater than human level intelligence yeah. could really be a hinge point between those two futures yeah. and maybe kind of everything in between as well. Okay, what do we do about this stuff? So what do we yes. do? <laughs> I think there are a couple what of things. Do <laughs> what do we owe the future? <laughs> what we owe the future. So on the kind of misaligned like AI takeover worry there you can there's this hot, huge kind of technical research program now on aligning ais with kind of human uh, values so basically mm -hmm. ensuring that ai systems do what you want them to do but then ensuring that they do what you want them to do even if they were much smarter than you are <laughs> so you can imagine uh, yeah. you're a child and you have come to kind of rule a country yeah. and you're trying to appoint you need to appoint some ruler in your place because mm. you know you're just a child and so you're trying to like figure out which of these adults who are much smarter and better informed than you which are lying to you which are mm. just sycophants just schemers or which are the ones that like actively you know trying to make a flourishing yeah. society that's a big challenge yeah. and so in terms of what you can do you can get a go into machine learning, get, uh, many people go and do PhDs there, and then start working on this technical yep. research program. Yeah. Also can actually benefit again from philosophers, like the numbers of philosophers involved, because it's still like, it's such an early stage field that- so It benefits from philosophers because they sit around and figure out like, what is the right just, moral thing to do here? <laughs> actually more or, just like conceptual clarity on like the nature of the, pro the problem that we're yep. facing and therefore kind of what are the best paths to reducing that, yeah to addressing that problem. Mm. So that's kind of one set of things. Yeah. And then the other big thing, and it is messy at the moment, like there is this big spectrum when it comes to issues affecting the long term. Yeah. There's a bit of a trade-off between what are the things that may be most important 
and like really future shaping and what are the things that are most tractable. Mm. There's something like, you know, climate change, clean energy, just robustly good, very tractable. We can put like billions of dollars into this. Everyone can be working on it. So robustly making the world better. And then the thing that I'm coming to is like AI governance, which is, okay, we're getting more and more powerful AI systems. Yep. Who has control over them? Who has power? How is that power being shared? Is there just like a race between the US and China? It's like a new arms race over artificial general intelligence, or is it some collaborative thing? Very messy, hard to know that you're making progress in it, but people can go into like policy and government work. And there's a bunch of stuff happening there that to try and make progress on this problem. It feels like there's all these potential problems that have a pretty high biostandards probability of causing significant problems in our lifetime. Yep. And in a way, like, I think even, even for example, the extinction, extinction, extinction argument, even if you don't buy long-termism yep. for, for whatever reason, it's just like, well, <laughs> significant risk of like really bad stuff happening to you in I your mean, lifetime and your kids and your grandkids. Like, come on. Yeah. Within effective altruism, this is a line of criticism over like the book, <laughs> yeah. um, not like the content of the book, yeah. but there's a lot of people who are just like, man, these things will just kill us in our lifetime or like have a significant probability of that. We don't need to go via this detour of yeah, like concern like, about oh, future no. people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so on the one hand, I just like, I want to convey what I believe. I think that like fact that this is impacting the long-term future yeah. is like really fundamental. And maybe we're confused about the pandemics. Maybe we're confused about AI and yeah. change our mind in 10 years. I want something robust to that. On the other hand, maybe I'm just being a philosopher and I'm like, yeah. I'm writing the stuff that's like a philosopher finds important. Uh, but yeah, I agree that like you don't need in any way to be a long-termist. You don't need to think past hundreds of years mm. to think that the things that we're focusing on are enormously important. Yeah, because yeah, they're having like very major impacts, yeah. negative effects, like in our lives. Yeah. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, right, I'm sold. <laughs> this is like, sounds scary as shit. And I need to do something about it. Maybe with my career, maybe yep. with my money, maybe with my time. What what are the starting points? Okay, I think the single first thing to do, obviously, other than Read reading the book, the of, book course. of course, yeah, sure. is it out yet officially? Will be out by the it time comes this out uh, six. Yeah, but yeah. by the time this podcast is out, <laughs> it will have been out sixteenth nice. uh, of August in the US and the first of September in the UK. Okay, sweet. Beyond that, I mean, eighty thousand hours, I would say, is the first stop. Mm. Um, so it was an organization that you know takes this paradigm of one thing worrying about existential risks and long-termism fairly seriously indeed mm. and so it has recommended career paths in yeah. areas like pandemic preparedness yeah. in areas like ai safety and ai governance yeah. as well as other areas like some of the things we've talked about global health and development yeah. and climate change and so on so it's and it's got enormous amounts of content there these long kind of career profiles as well so that's something uh, that's the probably like the first place to go Another book that's also excellent, like these two books are complementary, is The Precipice by Toby Ord. I mentioned Toby right at the start of this podcast. He was the person I co-founded Giving What We Can With, and he goes into a lot of detail on these some catastrophic risks that we could be facing. And then for other sorts of information, places that you can go, Open Philanthropy is a foundation that has some kind of really incredible kind of research reports and sometimes just blog posts on just like different issues that they've yeah. faced when um, trying to make grants in this area yeah. and issues that come up. So like, I don't know, looking at AI, for example, I said artificial general intelligence could plausibly come in our lifetimes. At what, at what date and what, with what probability should, yeah. we, should we think that will happen? 
they've put enormous amounts of work into this. So yeah. one was just this question of how much computation does the human brain use? And they spent months and months and months like interviewing all the top neuroscientists trying to get answers to that question. What does the trend in terms of cost for a certain amount of computation cost over time? And yeah. what should we expect investment to look like? Again, put enormous amount of research into that. And between that, then created a model to integrate that to try and figure out, okay, this is approximately when we should expect artificial general intelligence yeah. to um, appear. And you get significant probabilities on that within the next 20 years, and you get it happening like more likely than not within our lifetimes. So yeah, they have enormous amount of research as well. Okay. And then for learning more and more casually, there's um, the effect of altruism for them um, has discussion on these kind of long-termist topics and a lot of other stuff that's going on too. Nice. And I guess if someone's like, oh, sh there's all these causes and yeah. they, all, they all seem good and you made a compelling case for a lot of them, it's like, how do I know which path to go down? Is that by going on 80,000 hours and doing my, figuring out my sort of personality type and what I vibe with or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to do would be to, if you can try to reduce that uncertainty. So read these books, read 80,000 hours in depth, try and get to grips with it yourself. Yeah. If it does come to the, you come to the conclusion like, oh, they all seem equally good, yeah. then yeah, getting involved with 80,000 hours, providing, if you can, try and get career advice from them, yeah. and they can maybe guide you to somewhere that you have a particularly good fit. Yeah. And it could be that the thing you're best fit at, like for you, for example, if you're going to start hosting more kind of things yeah. related to effective altruism, you can do that across a wide variety of causes. So yes. perhaps you can have your cake and eat it too. You can. Yeah. If you were um, me, what would you be doing? Let's say you've got this platform, you've got 3 million subscribers of the main channel, you've got the podcast, you can kind of access a lot of people, probably not everyone in the world, but like yeah. a lot of people for an interview. What would, what should I be doing to maximize, I guess, impact? I mean, the very most obvious thing is to do kind of two, you know, move your podcast and YouTube in a direction such that you can both keep growing it. You're providing the content that, yes. you know, really brings people yeah, in. Like gets how, you how new to make passive income and stuff. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And then at the same time, host people who you think are expressing the most yeah. important ideas. Where my guess is that, I mean, it could be that you just go all in mm -hmm. on most important ideas, mm -hmm. but potentially... Yes, you my guess would be kill the goose that exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, lays the golden egg. Yes. If you did none of it, though, then I mean, I think the sort of advice helping people live their best lives, as you put it, mm. like it's making the world better. Mm. It's probably not making the world better by as much as no. getting people to stop the next pandemic. Yes, quite. <laughs> and so there'll be some like ideal kind of middle way. Middle way <laughs> yeah. But you could track that. You could look at like what's the sort of conversion you get from uh, how to have a passive income versus That's like. That's a very um, good idea. Yeah, like we could we, we could almost do because we do a bunch of ROI analyses in terms of like how much money the YouTube channel makes and stuff, and then the sponsors are obviously super interested in that. Yeah, but I guess we could make a model that's like what what is our impact as a YouTube channel and as an organization as a whole? Absolutely, because we got an email from uh, Luke Freeman who yep. runs yep. Doing What We Can yep. at the moment. When I made a video about it, they got like I think within a few week window an extra like million dollars in pledges. And he yep. was like, oh, that's however many divided yep. by $5,000 lives that a single video saved. And that was like a really badly performing video uh -huh. in the grand scheme of things. Yep. So if we could do more of that, if we could get more people to talk to 80,000 hours and just, yep. just be a little bit more thingy with their career, if we exactly, yeah, you <laughs> spawn can, you, the next SBF. <laughs> exactly, you can stack something. that impact. Yeah, I mean, and cool. it's not crazy at all that you yeah. would, you know, create someone who's generating, you know, billions of dollars worth of value for good causes. Yeah. And this is, yeah. this has happened in the past. I mean, 
the other podcast interviews I've done, the most impactful of which was Sam Havis, mm. um, in significant part because he, like you, took the Giving What We Can pledge, yeah. started giving every podcast he did. He gives $5,000 to, I mean, he's now giving actually much more than that, but yeah. uh, that was the start. So he could save a life. That just meant, yeah, enormous number of people took the pledge, got involved mm. in effective altruism. And, That's cool. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know he did that. That would be like every podcast episode saves life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's sick. That's, That's great. It. You could do this. You could do the same. Yeah, Amber, let's look at the financials. That would be fun. Yeah, exactly. And then just that idea. I, I, I know, like on James Clear's website, at the bottom of it, he had donates whatever percent. I think he's taken founders pledge or something. Okay, yeah. So one percent to the Against Malaria Foundation, and yeah. it's like a little tracker that in the footer of his blog about how to build better habits. It's like, oh, proceeds from my book sales have 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 saved twenty four lives. Yeah, which Perfect. makes it a very tangible. Very, number. Yeah, exactly. Very tangible. And yeah, and it would make sense for you as well to be covering. A broad array of causes. Yeah. I think if you were just kind of pandemics in the eye of the week, yeah. it might and get I'm a bit the tinfoil hat guy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's got particularly banned. But there's just like enormous numbers of good things that people in effective altruism are doing. Yeah. So yeah, you can highlight the... And there's also just like demand, I think, for kind of positive, optimistic... Yeah. stories about doing good because yeah, how, how are you so cheerful about this stuff it's weird it's funny <laughs> isn't it like, yeah oh yeah you know i put the risk of like a all-out nuclear war at 20 percent <laughs> it's, <like, what? laughs> it's so funny because there's yeah. some people on the spectrum of people worried about these risks i'm like comparatively optimistic like okay. my um risk numbers are quite low right <laughs> there are some people in particular in the bay area yeah. who think that agi 90 percent is coming in the next 20 years let's right. say given that 99% that everyone dies mm. um, from AI takeover. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them are just like, yeah, I'm just a cheery guy by nature. <laughs> like, kind of joking <laughs> while yeah. talking about this. <gasps> yeah. So I think this is a, another good example of like, you know, the kind of doctor mindset where yeah. you're just like, it's now a job and you just, yeah. you, just gotta, you kind of revert back to what your natural personality is. Yeah. But the war stuff, like, uh, really gets me. Like, I really, like... Wars is very common throughout history. Yeah. You can read, you can read about it. Yep. Like millions of people have died. Yep. We were very close to nuclear war. Like two cities in Japan have been were nuked. Yeah. This like animosity between the U.S. and China is growing already. India and Pakistan do not have good relationships. <laughs> there was a war. There was a skirmish between India and China in uh, 2020, yeah. June 2020, where people died. Yep. Like a fatal skirmish between the two most populous countries in the world. Like, yeah. this is not like, I don't know, the AI stuff, at least I can understand if yeah. people like, ah, oh, this feels like speculation. Yeah. But like, war is just a very real thing. Yeah. And it feels like viscerally very scary to me. But you stay cheerful because of just like personality vibes. And <laughs> I guess it's kind of nice to be able to talk about this stuff in a nice, well-lit room with a yeah. natural light. Be like, yeah. Risk well, of human extinction. Yeah, well, there's someone, perhaps if you do get more people, more guests on, a researcher at Future of Humanity Institute called Anders Sandberg. Mm. And he's one of the most just broadly knowledgeable people I've ever met. Yeah. And he often works on really just thinking about like what are worst case scenarios. So cobalt bombs or like these kind of, uh, which are like possible designs of nuclear weapons that would be like maximally destructive. He's also just the happiest person I maybe know. So he's just like cheerful, like joking about, about like, oh, yes. And this is, yeah. And I think like that's just his personality and Anders is just like a joy. Yeah. But yeah, it can't like, I do need to be checked sometimes. It's like these are talking about like morally horrific and like very yeah. serious things. So the cheer, yeah, like it's a balancing act on nice. model attitudes. So what do you, what, what does your day to day look like? It's a great question. It's very weird at the moment. The last two years during the pandemic, so 
I'm often very split. Like I'm a, you know, philosophy professor. I'm also on the board and co-founders of a number of nonprofits. Yeah. I'm also like doing a lot more outreach, yeah. like this sort of thing. Also doing like writing and research. Mm. So it's often kind of very split. Yeah. When the pandemic happened, I had this two-year period almost of just like, I was just like, this is the best time yeah. I will ever have in my life to write a book. Mm. And so this is going to be the biggie. This is what I'm really working on. Yeah. That day-to-day was very different than it is now. That day-to-day was... Yeah, waking up at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. and you know, make myself a nice like flat white coffee yeah. or something. And I'd have like two two kind of intense lighting periods yep. of like three hours in the morning and the afternoon. Yep. Um, maybe do some other stuff outside of that. I'd make sure I'd like, yeah, work out every day, yep. have like a nice long lunch break. Because for lighting as well, it's more about like peak performance. Yes. So my hours weren't that high. What does your and writing then, process look like? Like what do, what if I, because I'm writing a book at yeah, the moment, so oh, I'm yeah. just like trying to figure out anything, any magic secret source other than just sit down and write. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Which is um, what, what I actually need to do. Uh, I mean, that's the, by far the biggest thing. Yeah. I, I'm laughing because I once got writing advice and he, um, from a friend, I won't name him, but I think he'll probably be fine. He's a best-selling author. And he was giving me all of this advice. It was very standard advice. Like, mm. um, you know, write every day, yeah. do it first thing in the morning, have mm. like blocked time, yep. focus on input goals. <laughs> yep. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm not learning very much. And he was like, oh, and I'm drunk. I was oh, like, what? Okay. He's like, oh yeah, I just drink wine. <laughs> just like every day. <laughs> He's not an alcoholic, but yeah, it was just like, it helps yeah. him. So for me, I got pretty intense about optimizing things. Mm. So I definitely figured out when you do your best work. Yep. I think most of my value of my day is in the first three hours. Okay. So I try and not check anything, I'd have three hours. Then in the afternoon, it can be a little bit more chill, like maybe it's a bit more like reading in the search. Yeah. Every evening, um, I would check in with my chief of staff at the time, who's kind of, so I had a whole team kind of working on this, but, yeah. and with her, we would review the day. Yeah. So, well, we would set goals for the next day. So I'd yep. set input goals and output goals. Okay. Yeah. I would track the amount of time I was writing. I wouldn't track anything else. Yeah. So the only number I was having in terms of my inputs were just yeah. writing goals because everything else was less important. Um, and Sorry, I'd also in, say- Input versus output, do, you mean, do we mean- Input is um, how many hours I spent writing. I see an output is how many words you create? Or? Uh, yes, or it would be more sections. So I'd say like tomorrow, I'm going to do six hours of writing. Yeah. That, I count that like a full day. It wouldn't yeah. be very often I'd do more hours of writing than that. Okay. And then I would say, I want to write these four sections or these yeah. three sections. Okay. And so every day she would hold me to that, yeah, like nice. ask if I've done it. If That's not, good. like why? Yeah, yeah the accountability. <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's really huge. So yeah. deadlines are just very big. Yeah. Uh, it used to be that when I had a writing deadline, I would post on Facebook. Mm. Um, I would say, if you, if I don't submit this paper by this date, yeah. then I will give $50 to... And then at the time I was like, I'm looking for someone, you know, I posted on Facebook, like $50 to the first person to message or yes. something. And you need to spend it on something I don't approve of. And so a couple of people who eat meat mm. were like, okay, yeah, I will take that and I'll spend it on boneless chicken thighs. And I'm like vegetarian. <laughs> and there was one week I worked like a hundred hours, like yeah. worked through the night. Cause I was like, There's, I just cannot give this person money to buy chicken. So it's extremely effective. People, some people judge me on Facebook for yeah. being a weirdo. Yeah. But yeah, I find these kind of deadlines extremely effective because mm. writing more than anything is like psychological hurdles. It's easy to procrastinate. Yeah. If you have goals, you can really get through it. Mm. Then I'm also very heavy on just getting words on the page yeah. and it's shitty and yeah. you just write something yeah. and then revise it afterwards. I think looking back, I maybe wish that I did a bit more of like figuring out the kind of logical structure because yep. it's kind of this book was a real challenge in many ways. But mm. one reason it's a challenge is it's trying to do two things. One is be like something that's 
moving the state of the fun like our knowledge frontier forwards yeah so there's a, like a lot in that book that's like n- you know novel work yep. that you can't find even in academic journals or yeah. elsewhere but yet at the same time be this like broadly accessible introduction to these yep. ideas and normally those things like really trade off mm. and so i did think about the book kind of plan but when i was thinking about the book i was like okay if i'm gonna fail in one direction like probably i'm gonna fail on like not being accessible yep. understandable enough so i really lent heavily on that yeah but then it meant that sometimes structures of the chapter it was like oh this works narratively yeah but like people are getting a bit confused about the logical argument yep. and so you actually can notice it through the course of the book mm. where chapters eight and nine which are just like philosophy mm. <laughs> which i've put towards the end because it's like for the advanced reader who yes. really wants to dig in they're the like structure of the chapter is not yeah. much more clear because there, because there i was like less worried about Got the narrative it. kind of, yeah. side of things and yeah. there was also a bit of an issue that sometimes i'm like oh this would make for a really good narrative and it's based on maybe certain studies yeah and then i like got a search assistant to like yep. try and replicate the studies yep. and like it's like oh it doesn't check out and i'm like oh it's annoying yeah like, <laughs> it's annoying for the narrative it'd be <laughs> yeah. so nice if this were true <laughs> there's yeah. so many things that were so nice if they would have been true yeah but yeah this is you know, as I mentioned yeah. before this podcast, uh, yeah, we did an hour of, sorry, it did like at least a couple of years, like probably a couple of years worth of time just fact checking. Mm. But yeah, so in terms of that, so the process, a huge thing is just no other commitments. Yep. So I, some people are able to like write in the morning and then do other stuff in the afternoon. Yeah. I've been trying that. For me, it's not been really been working. For me, I just need long chunks of time. Yeah. And so for both doing good better and this Mm. it's like i just disappear from the world for doing good better that was about six months Mm. for this book it was a year and a half if i'm doing two things i'm like because the part of the issue is like everything else is more salient than writing a book yeah so what you're thinking about in the shower if there's something else going on your brain's thinking about that (laughs) you're not thinking about the work yeah and then i got absurd amounts of feedback on it as well okay so i had two yeah, that's like I had two big feedback rounds. Well, no, actually, and essentially I had three. Mm. So to begin with, I uh, prepared a talk that was like the core ideas yep. and went on a speaking tour because yep. I just, I wanted to be kind of this startup advice, talk to your users. Yep. I wanted to really get in the habit of presenting these ideas, getting yeah. feedback on what, nice. what resonated and what didn't. That was before writing the book. Then I wrote after the first five chapters, got intensive feedback on that. Yep. Again, it's maybe like 40, 50 people provided in-depth comments. Yep. And then I'd written an entire first draft of the book after that feedback round six months later after that. Mm. And then again, it was maybe even more like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was closing in on a hundred people who like provided comments yeah. and feedback on wow. it. Okay. So um, lots and lots of work. Into yeah. The book. And then, and what's your book going to be about? It's basically about how to do more of the things that really matter to you mm. by harnessing energy from the stuff that you're doing anyway. Okay, fantastic. So like sustainable productivity and how to make yep. it fun and sustainable and meaningful okay, and stuff. Because then a question for you, I don't know if you're going to yeah. have a team, but something that's unusual about this book is I had like a team of people, <laughs> like I was obviously the primary author, no one's contributed more to mm. the book than me, but I had researchers that I'd employed. Yeah. I had this like large network of contractors and consultants so there's tons of history in there i'm not a historian i did spend like i read a lot of history because i really wanted to get up to speed on it but i had a historian who was like on contract and the reason i focused on slavery is that for so much of chapter three is that i was asking i asked him like what are some examples of historical events that seem very important but yet were you 
not inevitable, could have yeah. gone either way. And he came back and he was like, I think the abolition of slavery. And I was like, that seems totally mad. I thought yeah. that was just like inevitable development. He's yeah. like, no, actually like historical, mainstream historical view is like, it's actually a relatively could have gone either way. Yeah. Could have gone either way. Again, it's like, you know, how to know, but like, this yeah. is not, you know, within his history. This is not this like is a like niche a, opinion. This not a niche like, opinion, yeah. exactly. And so then I got really obsessed by that and yeah. like really dug into it. But then also climate change, it's just... We haven't really Clim talked about climate change. We haven't really talked about climate change. What's the deal with climate change while <laughs> we're here? Because I did have it written down as like something to ask you about. Okay, for sure. And yeah. um, I actually maybe spent more time on climate change than anything else, even though it doesn't make a huge appearance in the right. book. Well, just because there's like this huge economics literature and huge science literature to yeah. really kind of dive in on. So, I mean, the way I put it in the book is decarbonization, in particular via funding innovation in clean energy. Yep. I consider it like the baseline long-termist activity. Okay, <laughs> the baseline. <laughs> exactly. So okay. it's like if you're doing nothing else, you should at least do this. <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. It. It's like this alone, kind of, I would say, like proves long-termism, yeah. and then, or uh, as I define it, and then uh, maybe we can do even more. Mm. And why do I think of it as a baseline? Well, in the book, I describe clean energy innovation as a win-win-win-win-win. Okay. And I now actually wish I think there's a sixth win oh, that, would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, that I should have put in. But why is that? So like, even if you're just looking in the near term, just people alive today. Yep. Burning fossil fuels kills three and a half million people a year. Oh, um, what? Health uh, particulates. Okay. So air pollution is this enormous health cost mm. that it, people barely talk about. Mm. So even within Europe, very unpolluted yep. part of the world, we lose about a year of life expectancy just due to the particulates from uh, fossil fuel burning. Yeah. <laughs> and when economists do the analysis, they tend to find that even if you're just looking at the health costs, the like near-term health costs, yeah. you've got an argument for like very rapidly de decarbonizing the world economy. Right. So that's one. So that's, that's one. Yeah. Second, over the kind of medium term, is obviously the climate change impact, yeah. which yeah, we all know like and understand very well. Of course. Cool. Yeah. Third is if you're doing it via clean tech, you can like decrease energy poverty. What's energy poverty? Just that um, people in poor countries like have very limited access to oh, so if you build solar energy. panels on their houses. Exactly, yeah. Also, if you can just make energy cheaper, which you're doing. You're also just advancing technological progress. Yeah. So we haven't talked about technological stagnation. Mm. I have a chapter in the book about that. I think that's a big deal and a big worry too. But we can... <laughs> <laughs> so there weren't enough. I wasn't worrying you enough. No, and, uh, I was like, oh, damn, there's another worry to worry about. Yeah, there's just more there. But then, in the more distinctively long-termist ways, mm. I think that I think that clean energy tech helps with both extending the lifespan of um, civilization. And then the sixth thing that I didn't really talk about is like I think it's good for value, uh, values perspective from the long run too. Mm. So on the extending life of civilization, lifespan of civilization. Imagine a catastrophe that doesn't result in human extinction, but does is so bad that it kind of sends us back to the industrial levels of technology. Yep. So perhaps it kills 99.9% .9 of the world population. There's a question, would we recover from that? As in, would we just stay as farmers forever? Mm. Or would we redevelop um, science mm. and industri like post-industrial technology? And again, I have a chapter in this book discussing that question. Okay. I actually come out very optimistic. Okay. I think it's like actually very, very likely that, that we, we wouldn't would. just go back to the Stone Age forever. We would be able to reinvent. Exactly. We would be able to reinvent this microphone <laughs> at some point. Uh, at some point. <laughs> yeah. And part, like, there's many, many considerations there, but one is just looking at, like, what are the potential blockers? Like, is there any, like, resource that we, like, have used up now that, like, we wouldn't otherwise have yep. that seems kind of essential? Yep. And there's nothing that really is, like, 
remotely plausible to be essential that we have used up or might plausibly use up with one exception, <laughs> which is fossil fuels. Oh. Where we obviously, like in terms of easily accessible oil, mm. we've basically used that all up. Yeah. Easily accessible coal, we yeah. still have like 300 years to go. Okay. Nonetheless, like if you told me that it's 300 years time and we've burned through all easily accessible coal, mm. I'm not like totally shocked. I think it's unlikely. I think we are just transitioning away yeah. from fossil fuels. I'm like actually pretty optimistic on the yeah. progress we're making. But it still just provides this like extra reason to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Okay. Which is the, in case we um, need them at a later date. Exactly. We can yeah. dig them up fairly easily rather exactly. than trying to build a fracking distillery that like yeah which would goes, be impossible yeah. with like 1700 How are you gonna do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 18th century technology yeah so this is kind of like this additional reason it's like a last resort last resort exactly yeah like Break it's civilizational in, in case of emergency yeah. civilizational insurance it like helps rebuild yeah. civilization then the final thing which is the thing i like didn't include is like the pathway via values mm. where the invasion of ukraine has just made this like much more salient yeah. countries that rely very heavily for the GDP on oil yep. and gas and coal. Often, <laughs> well, actually, no, I'll flip it the other way. Among the countries that seem like the scariest in terms of their governance, yes. they often, and yet are powerful yes. and like mm. um, economically developed. Yes. How do they manage to do those both of those things? Typically, it's because they have enormous fossil fuel reserves yeah. and are selling fossil fuels. Yeah, so they can just so print money. People, exactly. So yeah. some people describe Russia as a gas station with a military. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's okay. like yeah. how, you should, how you should understand it. Okay. Similarly with kind of, yeah, some of the more worrying kind of uh, Gulf state countries. Yeah. Or dictatorships that get set up in um, yeah. Africa as well. Mm. So there's this thing of the resource curse where in... It's an, like a phenomenon noted by economists where yeah. among very poor countries, especially looking at Africa, those countries with the best natural resource deposits yeah. tended to have the worst economic performance oh. because there's an incentive there's no, yeah. for a military coup, take power, yeah. become a dictatorship, yeah. extract yeah. natural resource wealth. They can use that to prop themselves up. Yeah. They don't need to like yeah, um, no listen, listen to, to build the people. technology and stuff because... Exactly, or, ha or have a democracy. Yeah. And so the final thing is just like you move off fossil fuels, you've decreased that, um, yeah, that, that pathway to... Uh, yeah, six wins, exactly. So I think of clean energy tech as very unusual in this space in yeah. that it's like, it's very robustly good. I've given you these six different perspectives and it looks good on all of them. Mm. And then secondly, it's just an area where we really understand what's going on as well, like mm. the health pollution, the like the fact that it advances technolo technology, the yeah. impact on climate change. Like this is not like a speculative area. And then finally, why is it a baseline? We could just dump like tens of billions of dollars into this, yeah, and it would be able to um, absorb that and do something useful with it. Exactly, yeah. Right. Whereas these some of these other areas, it's like okay, they're very underfunded at the moment. They've got like tens of millions of dollars, like. How much can we scale that up? It's like, it's yeah. unclear. Like probably we can, but yeah. like it's at least not as obvious. Nice. Yeah. Um, the idea of sustainable productivity, the vague structure for my book is as follows. I, the, the, the top level idea is that really the secret to sustainable productivity is to find a way to get energy from the things that you do mm -hmm. so that you can give more energy to the things that you love to do or something yeah. like that. So okay. need some, some level of wordsmithing. Yeah. So three parts of the book, classic part of the sort of three part structure. Part one is called Energize. Yeah. And it's about the three energizers, yeah. the three P's of power, play, and people, which are the things that make anything that we do, whatever it's, whether it's work or projects or chores, yeah. more energizing. Yeah. Then part two is like, okay, you've got that energy or like, 
it's all it's all well and good that stuff energizing you once you're doing it but a lot of people struggle to get started mm-hmm. and so those are about the three blockers that cause procrastination okay so we call it we're calling those obscurity anxiety and inertia obscurity basically like goal is not particularly yeah yeah clar- etc anxiety like self-doubt and all that crap and then inertia just like, oh, i can't be asked to get started yeah. and then the final part of the book is sustain so it's like in uh, part one energize part two unblock part three sustain so like how do we make this all sustainable mm-hmm. so one chapter about like the idea of consistency and just seeing seeing things through through to the end another chapter about recovery and rest and stuff and how that relates with burnout and yeah. how we think about rest and recovery and recharging and the final chapter about like purpose and meaning and nice. stuff yeah. as like the ultimate thing that makes anything sustainable if you believe in it if you're working for a cause that you really care about would love to hear just any thoughts on that structure that idea anything that come to mind anything that sparks that i can follow up as like a, a book recommendation or anything like that okay sure i mean like in terms of i mean so obviously i would make a plug for EA being in the final chapter, Absolutely. if you're talking about yes, meaning, that would be very good. <laughs> yep. I mean, I'm sure you know the procrastination equation, yep. a second thing. One thing is just like, I mean, as you, I'm sure you know, like, what's the value of a book? Mm. It's like, no one reads books. What happens, though, is like, you have, a, it like, builds up brand and cachet yeah, and your own ideas. Yeah. And it, yeah, is it, what did you call a it? Lead magnet. Lead magnet, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it's exactly right. And people are like, oh, there's this book, and they've got this thing to hang on. And so then it's like, there just needs to be like one idea that's like yep. very magnetic yep. and memorable. And so like one story or something. Mm. I don't know if you have that yet, but like mm. think about that as like yep. 50% of the value of the book right, or okay. something. Like <laughs> one story, yeah. if you spend half your time just getting that one story. Yep. So that, unfortunately, I actually don't have this for this. And this is like a major issue. Mm. And I'm still trying to think about like what, what can work there. Mm. But... Yeah, Peter Singer's like drowning child yep. analogy. You know, in his original article, that takes up two sentences. Yeah, but it's the thing everyone remembers. Everyone so remembers. Like, yeah. So do you know Made to Stick? Uh, the book? Yes, I haven't read it. By Chip and Dan Heath. Yeah. Extremely good book. One of my favorite books. Okay. And it's about how you write sticky ideas. And yeah. it's just like very powerful. And it's almost always stories. Yeah. So if you can get like two famous people one of whom like horrifically burned out and the other one just like had this like long running yes. success over time. Yeah. I don't know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. Yeah. Or like um, Buffett, how did he keep going for sort of 90 years? Or yeah, exactly. Thing? Yeah. That's like ideal. It's yeah. like, you've got this like 90, yeah. 80 year old yeah. who's still like crushing it. Like, yeah. ha- like how, yeah, um, that's a, that's a good shot. then that's like really memorable. Nice. And that's much more memorable. Like you gave me these PPP. I've, not, yeah. I've forgotten it already. Yeah. I've got to remember those. Yeah. Story. Yeah. Yeah. But just, it's one opening story, and you will say it a thousand times. Yeah, in all the podcasts and all the things. <laughs> exactly. And yet, that's the thing that people will hear, and they'll be like, okay, Ali Abdal, this book, yeah. it's that story. Yeah. And then, like, that's the, again, most of the value. Like, so that's a big thing. And that's the natu- naturally, that's the thing you lead with as well, like, and appears in an excerpt. Yeah. In terms of the content of it, it's kind of interesting. Like, I'm just not sure how true it has been for me that I like get energy from one set of things and yeah. that like transfers over to being energetic about other things. Uh, yeah. So in a, in a way it's like that, that causal link is, is not quite what we're trying to say. Okay. What, what we're trying to say is that like, it's really hard to be productive in a sustainable fashion. If the thing that you are actually doing really drains your energy. Yeah. And so let's figure out a way to make it more energizing. Mm-hmm. And okay. Okay. As almost as, as as a side effect of incorporating autonomy and like a sense of play and people and yeah, accountability okay. and stuff into your work, okay, you'll be more productive at the thing, but yeah. you'll also be more like motivated at the end of the workday. If, for example, you don't like your job, yeah, okay. So it's kind of like a manual for improving 
in practice improving grit, like improving ability to achieve like large yes. projects over long time yes, periods. Essentially that. So that could be another story as if there is someone mm. who's like they achieved something that's very impressive but took like twenty years. Yeah. That would be like a very good story. It's like, and then how did they do that? Okay, that is something which is like resonated with me. Mm. I like find it like, why have I been successful? I'm yeah. like kind of confused by it. I mean, obviously a big part of it is luck. Yes. But I think one thing I do do is like, I have long-term goals that I really work towards yep. that other people, I don't know, like, like writing a book, especially like, this is like a real effort book. Yeah. It does involve just like, you're plugging away at something over a very long time period. Yeah. And there's lots of people who I think like have the ability to write such a book, yep. but like lots of people just don't. Yeah. And so what's going on there? One is like, yeah, that, like you say, feeling of purpose. Like I just feel morally motivated. I'm like, if I'm slacking off, like yeah. that's important. The world is getting worse. Yeah. Um, obviously easier to do when it's like poor people in sub-Saharan Africa than existential threats can be like a little bit harder to visualize. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, I'm still just like, okay, this is morally motivated. I yeah. should push myself every day. Morally motivating. What does the goal look like? Is it like an input goal or is it like an outcome goal? Or is it like, I want the book to hit X number of sales or like... Oh, I mean, my goal is much bigger than the book. Okay. I have a vision for the world where everyone has this kind of shared goal of just making the world better. Yeah. And it's just agreed. We've got this like impartial goal. Yeah. And everyone's just willing to reason about it. And that's understood to be just like part of living a good model life yeah. in the same way as like not being a racist and, yes. <laughs> you know, not like murdering and so on. Yeah. And I'm just like, that is achievable. Like we could have that world mm. rather than the world where it's like US versus China and like yeah. the, you know, the woke and the anti-woke and yeah. everyone's <laughs> fighting. And I'm like, no, instead it's kind of like, like within EA is just like, you've got all of these people that are like, okay, we want to do as much good as possible. We believe in like reason and argument as the yeah. way of like figuring out things. And it's like, people can have disagreements, but there's always this feeling of like shared project. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I want to just expand that to the world as a whole. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, how do we get there? And then it's like, well, one path on this, and like, obviously I'm just trying to move yeah. the world in that direction. Yeah. But one path in that direction is, you know, having a book and convincing more people. Yeah. And that's like, that's motivating. And then like, there's sub, a sub goal of like, okay, I want, you know, when I was writing it, I definitely wasn't thinking about this. Now it's like campaign mode or something yeah. like, okay, I want to be on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list or like, what would it involve? Yeah. When I was like actually writing the book, the sub goal was more just like, I want to write, I guess I like want to write something that I'm like still kind of happy with when I die or like, yeah. I want to write something that's like the obituary is like, yeah. Will McCaskill who wrote What We Are The Future. Yeah. Like, okay, got it. I was like, this is the output I wanted for yes. like, so I think there's, yeah. So I was, yeah, much more focused on just like, how can I how can I create the kind mm. of most important book I can? Yeah, so it's like um, during the process of it, because I think for, for for me with the book, like if I think too much about the New York Times bestseller list, it demotivates me to write the book because it just feels oh, like yeah. too much pressure. Yeah, I really wasn't thinking yeah. about that. Yeah, um, I guess when you're in also, it doesn't book, matter. Like yeah. no yeah. one reads the book. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of like that means. I mean, again, like go to chapter eight, like. It gets pretty technical. Yeah. Endnotes, they got us to put a lot online, but it's still like a big chunk of the book. Yeah. Like I got to do all of the like nerdy, like yeah. <laughs> intellectual content I wanted to put in there. Cause it's like not that many people will make it to chapter eight. Yeah. Those that do will be interested. Yes. Yeah. So it is actually kind of liberating. Yeah. <laughs> you can like partly do it for you. So yeah. Why do I think I'm like good at like longer term aims? I think a big thing is like 
having a vision that I ultimately want to achieve. And then it's like this backward induction of like, okay, so we've got to do this thing and this thing and this thing. And that ties to like now, like therefore to tomorrow, we've got to do like three hours of lighting in the morning. What do you, what do you find helpful when you find yourself procrastinating? Normally the, the main thing I'm, the main thing I want to say is like structuring my life. So I don't procrastinate this three phones. (laughs) Yeah. What's the deal with three phones? (laughs) Uh, So, I used to have one phone. Yes. I used to procrastinate a lot. Cool. I am like, have a horrifically addictive personality. Mm. It's like, there's always got to be something that can be computer, like computer fruit ninja, whatever. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Mm. BBC. That's kind of one set of things. Another is just like, which is just also very common, is always wanting to check email or messages or like some stressful work thing and therefore like not getting a work-life balance. Yeah. Whereas I'm like extremely in favor of just like, hard lines between like are you are you using time that's optimized for time off or are you using time that's optimized for work like there's nothing in between i think that's a really bad state to be in so i guess in between you're sort of half doing like oh i should be doing work but i'm yeah lots of people do this like even since uni i was like yeah people are like oh i'm in the library but i'm also chatting i'm just like what is this yeah or the worst is if it's like oh it's my day off but i'll do a bit of work and so it's like no just do one thing or the other yeah why do you find that helpful? Why do I find that helpful? Yeah. I just think it, you get the worst of both worlds. You're neither most productive nor m- having the most enjoyment if you're like doing something that's like half work, okay. half enjoyable. Okay. Whereas you want like, you want chunks of like pure rejuvenation time. Yes. And then when you're working, I mean, in general, there's this underlying view, which also underlies a lot of effective altruism, which mm. is like most value is in the tales. So like it's the same like like, like goes into the eighty twenty rule. But yeah. um yeah, if there are like ten things you do you could do, you do all ten. Like how much value comes from the best one, how much value comes from the worst one. Mm. Maybe it's one percent from the best one, like fifty percent from the best one. Yeah. That's true for leisure then, like of all the good things you could do, yeah. like with your time off, yeah. like if you're doing something that's kinda of crappy, maybe that's like ten times worse yeah. than some in terms of how rejuvenating yeah. it is than something that's best. Similarly, when you're working, like if you're like, oh, I'm doing this half work channel, it's probably just like, no, you should just focus on the best thing. Actually, that relates to another, like a bit of like a guiding motto Mm. or like productivity technique for me is I call it eat that elephant. So do you know the book, eat that frog? So yeah, the idea is you have some time, like three hours and you just, the most hardest thing, you just do that. Eat that elephant is like that, but for much larger tasks. (laughs) And so I'm normally like, nothing there's just something that's the most important thing yeah do nothing else yeah. until you have finished that most important thing and maybe that's like two weeks and you've got this like enormous in that like inbox and you've not responded to any of your emails but now you've done that most important mm. thing maybe it's an entire book maybe yeah. <laughs> um now i'm in a situation where it's like you know i have this team around me so i can like yeah. still handle those other things and things don't clash mm. but it definitely like prior to that which is most of the time it yeah. would instead be just be like okay dropping everything zo- like completely zooming in this yeah. most important thing and i think that's like really or like i guess the future fund was kind of like that as well it's like i had this whole plan it's like Nope, there's this new foundation. Like, I'm kind of, I didn't quite top everything. It's like, how can I yeah. manage everything? But I'm now focusing on this thing. Yeah. And I think it's served me really well because people just don't, I think people aren't willing to like switch um, enough. Yeah. Uh, so a big yeah. thing is just structuring my environment so that procrastin- it's hard to procrastinate. Okay. So I have a work phone yep. that has email, Slack, yep. work email, Slack, Signal, which I use for other messages. And then I have a personal phone, which doesn't have those things, mm. but has other things. And then I have this like old crappy phone that yeah. takes ages to load up yeah. and that has like indulgences. 
Oh, um, okay. And actually, since I've had the phone, I've basically never used it. Yeah. Like, almost never use it. But, like, if there were, like, if I was like, oh, I really want to play this iPhone game, yeah. then it would be on that phone. Yeah. And it lives in, like, a, in like a drawer. Oh, great. <laughs> and so it's like, I can still play it anytime I want. Yeah. I just have to load it up. It's got a crack, like, a brutal crack screen. <laughs> right. okay. just have to load it up, you yeah. wait the five, ten minutes yeah. <laughs> that it takes to load, because yeah. it's this old phone. Like, get it from the drawer. Yeah. So that's a, a, essentially equivalent to work phone, personal phone, and like a games console. Almost. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, like a Nintendo Switch so. or something. Exactly. Like I've got one and I haven't used it in years because it's just in the drawer. And I, I know I always could use it if I wanted to, but I yeah. just tend not to. Yeah. So I think for like, how do you overcome procrastination? The main thing is like, don't be put in a position such that you can procrastinate. Mm. So like, similarly, like, how do I avoid eating sugary food or something? Is like, don't have sugary food around. The other thing, but then, so, yeah, it's impossible to avoid all forms of procrastination. Mm. Yeah. The accountability stuff has been by far and away the biggest thing. Yep. And touch tracking time when I've been writing. Yep. Um, otherwise, it's so easy to procrastinate. So, like input time and output time. So, input literally just number of hours. Yeah. So, do you mean like. And output goals, yeah. Like, oh, from 9 to 12, I was writing? Or do you mean like from 9.01 to 9.18, I was using Google Docs, therefore I was writing? Yeah, as in I've got toggled track on right. my computer. Yeah. So, it's like I, I press it. Mm. If I go to the bathroom, it goes off. Okay. Um, so that three hours is like really stacked hours. Like I take a break, it goes off and I start again. Oh. And I'm normally like. So it's like actually three whole hours. Yeah, yeah. No, actually three whole hours. four hours of like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be about four hours. So like, yeah, typically. Oh, damn. I'd be so productive if I did that. (laughs) Yeah. If it was like, and you literally notice people take a lot longer breaks than than they would realize otherwise. So yeah, typically during the pandemic, when I was writing, I would, um, yeah, it would be something like eight to 12, three hours of writing. Yep. And then like, yeah, two till six, yep. three hours of writing. And then like a little f- few other things in the nice. evening after that. And then ending at seven. Final question, I guess, on this front is like power, play and people. Essentially, basically power being a combination of autonomy and mastery, yep. taking pride, taking control, taking responsibility of the thing that you're doing. Yeah. Because weirdly, somewhat somewhat counterintuitively, I hope, uh, putting more energy actually gets you more out of it. Yeah. Whereas if you're disengaged with your work and you just put the bare minimum in, you're actually just yeah. sucking life out of yourself. Uh, play basically just like uh, tracking progress with like a little progress bar like they do in video games. Oh, yeah, yeah. But also kind of treating things with... Uh, being like sin- sincere rather than serious, yep. ap- approaching things with lightness and ease and just in the spirit of play. And finally, people finding a way to ask for help from others, finding a way to help others, and finding a way to sort of work with others through accountability and things like that. Anything come to mind, like stories from your life or anything like that, where you're like, oh, I, tr- I did this thing and this really helped? Yeah, it's interesting with the people. It was a little different than how I would describe it. Yep. For me, it's just like, if you're around high-performing people, you perform better. Yep. So like humans are like, imitators and we imitate like it's actually really remarkable even comparing to other primates we like imitate even in cases where we don't understand what's going on right um whereas monkeys like or apes like they need to know why someone's doing like another ape is doing something before they will imitate that yeah but we just imitate anything that's happening so yeah and that just means like if you're surrounded by just like really hard-working high-performing people who are really focused yeah. you just start doing the same <laughs> yeah. and if other people are like lazing around you just start doing the same yeah that's just true for all of us and so when you said people i thought it was going to be more via this mechanism that's much less kind of formal or much less like defined yeah. and it's more like picking up the vibe it's huge though mm. culture's just huge so that's the thing i was going to say other things oh one meta thought do you know ben todd he's no, this um yeah he's the co-founder of the co-founded 80,000 hours with him I think 
Firstly, I just think you get on really, really well. He's also just the person who's thought most about this stuff that oh, I know. Nice. Would it be He's nice actually, being on the pod? He would love that. Sick. Yeah. Is he best in the UK? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. perfect. His office is 10 minutes. Walk Incredible. Away. Yeah. That would be so good. And he's in fact writing a book now because he was running 80,000 hours and is now moved into a pleasant role so he can like focus more on writing and wants to have a book. Nice. But like <laughs> he's really deep on the productivity okay. stuff and... Awesome. Also, how that impacts your his whole your whole life. So, oh, glorious! And he's like really on top of the evidence of it. Um, Perfect. Okay. Yeah, I, I think you'll get on really well. Yeah. Can you um, do an intro? Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, in terms of things that have really made a big difference, like medication. So, antidepressant medication, yeah. like because you're depressed or because you mind the migraines. No, I mean I started on antidepressants because I was depressed yeah. from like 2011, and then switched to this particular type because yeah. of migraines. Right. But yeah, just like you know, there are many pat like procrastination. Yeah. Is like. It's a psychological phenomenon, but like the many, you don't need a psychological response or something. No, it's like, um, and like loads of people I know have just like enormously benefited. And like, I honestly think that people shouldn't necessarily be in the mindset of like, am I depressed or not? Like, rather, they should be like, if I consume this pill, will it have a net positive impact on my life? Yeah. Again, it's not necessarily the mindset the doctors always have, but yeah. I know other people who are just like, I don't know, maybe they're mildly depressed and then started in particular Welbutrin. Um, Welbutrin. Okay. So it's an antidepressant. Um, okay. It's prescribed only for smoking cessation oh, in okay. the UK. In right. the US, it's prescribed for as an antidepressant. It's okay. one of the lead ones, actually. Right. But it's a very different mechanism than SSRIs. Mm. Um, and it is also like, people find it just particularly good in particular like it's like high energy it was kind of when it was first developed in the u.s again u.s like medical advertising it was marketed as like the happy horny skinny pill um because uh it doesn't have the normal anti-libido effects yeah. it can actually gain. have all weight gain yeah. yeah but actually it's also like can be like good for just like high energy and mm. focus similarly like a lot of people i know who yeah were like struggled with this stuff for ages and then got diagnosed with adhd yeah. that's just like huge like now that on yeah, like yeah, medication it's just like oh yeah that that's a problem of the past yeah. in terms of other things i've done i mean yeah another one is just like being on top of my mood like, oh, you, uh, like you describe me as yeah, yeah. How, do you like questionnaire yourself or something or like how do you i now like because i was working so hard i like i was there was a point maybe a month ago or something yeah. or a month and a half ago that i was like okay i'm clearly on this like burnout trajectory so yeah. i started like monitoring my mood and a bunch of other indicators and oh. over time i'm gonna see like how it how it all correlates what, what, what were those indicators that you were monitoring and, uh, like, how did you monitor your mood uh yeah so i just have a spreadsheet okay it's got dates and then what do i put in i put in my mood my productivity my number of hours worked yeah i put in whether i've been traveling i put in my location yeah. i put in whether i'm in the same location as my partner yeah i put in whether like my partner's feeling sad because again i just predict that, that yeah. has a big impact on me i put in whether like did i have a nap did i exercise did i meditate mm. uh how much caffeine did i drink yeah. and then i also like i think there might be some other things okay. and then i also put in um qualitative comments as well and so i'm going to look oh, see it, yeah. see what other patterns over oh, time and yeah. presumably you don't do this all the time just like when you sense yourself on a burnout trajectory you're like yeah i've just this is a new yeah. thing that i'm trying as of a few weeks ago oh, cool. but i think it's actually already helpful even yeah. just for the like hey, this is now something I'm monitoring yes. and thinking about. So. Final thing I wanted to ask you about is completely different is, and I'm again asking selfishly, like what, how do you think about the balance between sort of your personal income versus the money that is in the business to like, well, in the business, whatever your business looks like, to hire people and researchers and all that stuff? Oh, okay. I mean, I think that's maybe a weird, maybe I'm not the person to advise or something because my, my personal 
I've just got this cap and then it's just all, <laughs> in a sense, it's like all either in the business or going to charity or like... Okay. As in... Yeah. So like like in our case, we have a bunch of cash in the business, basically. Yeah. Which is currently not being put to very much use. Yeah. And even though I take money out of the business, there's still like way more in the business than I mm-hmm. really need to live on. Mm-hmm. It's like what I'm thinking is, what do we do with that? Yeah. If we donated 100% to charity, it's like, well, then there's not operating capital. For oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's just... Okay. Yeah. Thing. Um, well, I think in the first instance, interesting for anyone. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> no, it's cool. I don't know, <laughs> bonus yeah, material yeah, or something yeah. like after that. Was, I mean, uh, yeah, if I were you, I would think of it as kind of a failing that you have this money in the bank and you haven't thought of a way of like turning it into more success. Yeah, something or other, Like, yeah. um, I'd be like, okay, if I'm not doing this, I'm like screwing up in some yeah. way. Uh, where, yeah, I don't know. Like, I would think something like, can you be getting like, let's say a 15% return on this, mm. like 10, 15% return on this. If not, then maybe donate it. Mm. But like, so like there's yeah. this hard question of like, yeah. at what point do you like keep in, I mean, it actually might be higher for you, like even a lower bar for you because you're not going to be like your path to impact, assuming you get on board with like bringing yeah, people yeah, on yeah. the show and so on. Absolutely. But yeah, your path to impact is uh, not going to be via making money it's instead like you want to build up this thing yeah we could like start putting some numbers on it but anyway there's going to be some rate of return that you can get from so you, you've got the cash yeah if you put it i mean put it in a bank at the moment you get 0.1 percent yeah, interest the SNP, or then hopefully you'll it's on sale at the moment <laughs> yeah snp on average it's yeah. like five percent per yeah. year real seems like you're onto a good thing i think you should be able to get better returns than that mm. where like at what rate of return should you switch from like in order to maximize your impact donating mm. it rather than that's a good point yeah investing it? we probably have way more we it's just like i just haven't thought about the question of like what what is the goal here yeah um I, in my mind is vaguely i help people live their best life yeah like, yeah there's no uh, yeah 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 i mean my best yeah my best guess is that like if you're genuinely going to be trying to use this platform to move people into effective altruism yeah. stuff to a first approximation, just try and grow this as much as possible and try and what as much as possible? try and grow the business grow, yeah. and your profile as much as possible and like invest. Oh yeah. Here's a way of thinking about it. Like yeah. we spend money that is a loss, yes. just like straightforward loss yeah. in order to get more people engaged with effective altruism. Yeah. Like there's no return mm. insofar as you're doing something that has like, yeah. Okay. So the answer might well be that you should be spending all of the cash and more like you should be like yes. asking for gra- asking for grants yeah. to like oh can, like, I, can i grow it even further grant to a foundation to be like hey this is this is the impact that we're having yeah exa- exactly <laughs> and yeah we need more money to be able to do this thing yeah so which take that seriously yeah. yeah yeah as for like what's the best way of spending that like is it more researchers is it like mm. more marketing um That's a good point. i don't i don't know because in my mind i'm kind of thinking that oh i, I, I want to run a 60 percent profit margin why the fuck do I want to run a 60 No, wait, margin? that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah, it's an arbitrary number I plucked out of thin air because it gives me fun, it, the sense of psychological safety that like, oh, right, yeah. there's a couple million in the bank and I don't need to touch it. Okay, yeah. Dumb. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at Amazon. Like, yeah. what was its profits for <laughs> yeah, like, years and years? It was zero. Yeah, like, yeah, zero or negative. And that's like why... Yeah. Like, and it makes sense. Like, what are the companies that are going to get biggest? It's like those that yeah. just like ruthlessly reinvest um, yeah. what they've made. Okay, yeah, I need to sit down and think about this. We've got some EA and people coming it, yeah. over for dinner tonight. So and this is also, <laughs> okay, yeah, this also um, is a difference between if you're trying to optimize for impact versus income. So yeah. you might think like, okay, I've got a couple of million in the bank now. Yeah. I'm just going to be happy with that. Yeah. Like, I can just seek that out. Like, yeah. additional money's not worth that much more. Yeah. And because you've got like, 
is it three million YouTube subscribers yeah. about that? Okay, yeah. So you're like, if I had six million, I'd have a bit more money, yeah. but it's not going to be a huge difference yeah, in my well-being. Like, I don't, I'm not particularly motivated to grow the numbers exactly. because I don't have like an impact goal. Exactly. With it. But now, if you're having impact, yeah. <laughs> how much better are the six million subscribers than three million? Yeah, Tw way better. <laughs> Probably about twice as yeah. good. Like maybe not exactly yeah. like you could, but like to first approximation. Yeah. And so, having altruistic impact in mind gives like much stronger arguments for scaling yes. than merely um, financial. Yeah, because that's the thing. It's like the more we scale, the more headache I have because it's like more people. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even though we've got now got management and stuff, it's still like not the same as not the same level of speed as me just doing stuff myself with yeah. like a team of three people oh, right, yeah. but obviously the scale helps that the things that i've always been currently it's been a battle between like scaling the business but like what's the point because i don't need more money yeah but if it's like if the point is actually impact I, exactly yeah now there's a reason to do the thing yeah absolutely and in a way just even and entertaining that thought makes it feel like way more fun yeah, exactly. Like, it's oh, also sick. like, yeah. yeah, let's get a team of 50 people if we can, if we can sustain it. Yeah, I mean, because also like, I don't know, do you really want to have a lifestyle business, which is just like, come on, it's not as cool as like, I don't know, like, what's your long run aim? Like, I don't know. I think I, I, I'm, probably, not, I'm not sure how to think of that. Yeah, because part of me is like, I mean, I just would love to spend my t if I again, if I won the, won the lottery, I would just spend my time reading, writing, teaching, yeah, learning yeah. about cool shit, making videos about it, yeah, doing podcasts, yeah. writing books. Yeah. It's, which is all the stuff I do anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wouldn't bother making any more courses. I just put them online for free because yeah. the only reason we make courses is to make money. Yeah. But I, I don't know how to figure out this question of like, what is my aim? Yeah. Okay. How, how should I do it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting with yeah, YouTubers. Like, what's the like? I guess the like the real upside upside is like you have like a media company. It's like participant. Yeah. Do you know participant media? No. Really? So it's like a it's a fun. It's basically a fund that. Funds movies that have social impact. Oh, okay. so do you know the film Contagion? Yes, that was. A, that? Oh, really? Yeah, that's oh, like right. a social enterprise oh, wow. um, funded thing. <laughs> okay. It's by Jeff Skoll, one of the eBay co-founders. So similarly, like the iPhone game Plague, the board game Pandemic. Oh yeah, they why, were by why was there so much stuff about pandemics oh, beforehand? Shit. Yep, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. only people paid more attention. Yeah, but yeah, but you could do that like at much larger scale. Mm. Do you know Philip Detmer? Kurtz Kazagt. Oh yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's really into EA as well. We've been working with him a bunch. Oh recently. yeah. He did the, yeah, all so. the video. He's done a bunch of videos about long termism type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's gonna. Include, he's got more in the pipeline as well. So. Nice. Yeah. You should definitely meet as well. Yeah. But he yeah. So it's be. worth thinking about. Like, yeah. What's the real upside? Yeah. And I think probably it is just like, oh yeah, you're doing YouTube. That's one aspect of it. Hollywood is another aspect. Mm. Like, yeah, you just got like this like huge kind of like media platform. Mm. This has been sick. Thank you so okay, much. Nice. For no, I've enjoyed things. it so this has been much. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And we should definitely keep in touch. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, okay. Any any final ask to the audience when they hear this? Appreciate the fact that, like, if you're listening to this, you're probably in this immensely influential position. You live at this very unusual time in history when we have unprecedented opportunity to do good. If you're listening, you may have your whole career ahead of you as well. This is this huge opportunity to have a contribution to one of the biggest problems in the world. So check out 80,000 Hours, read What We Are the Future, or my previous book, Doing Good Better. And uh, yeah, let's together try and do as much good as we can. Amazing. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. <laughs>